Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that hits rewind and occasionally fast forward on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this my co-host and uh, the birthday girl for this week as well is Sarah Jane Kemp. Happy birthday, hope you got a chance to celebrate. Hello, yes I did. Um, I'm actually, I, I don't know how I'm okay today because I definitely celebrated quite a lot yesterday and last night. I got taken out to the Dorchester um, Alan Ducasse at the Dorchester, which has been on my dream list of restaurants to go to for years. So um, we did the, the, the tasting menu with a lot of wine. So, um, yeah, I'm surprised that I'm feeling good, but I'm, I'm fine, Rick. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I think I think because you're in tier two, you can go to restaurants and, and have like a, some semblance of a night out because I'm in tier three. Uh, I don't think I'm even allowed to go out for a drink with a substantial meal. I think we're still waiting to go into tier two for that. But yeah, otherwise I'm all good. I guess that's the reason why I've been gigging this week, but not in the usual way. Yeah, so so tell us about it, because you, ta- you were talking about this last time around uh, seeing the Orioles, right? How was it? Yeah, it was good, yeah. Um, I guess I didn't know what to expect with a with a virtual gig. You know, we've been previewing a lot of these on recent episodes without me ever actually really stopping to think, what's a virtual gig actually going to be like? And um, I guess I was pleasantly surprised. Obviously, they're a band I'm a fan of. I may not have, I may have mentioned that once or twice on the last episode, but I think what surprised me was just the quality of the sound. I think when you often watch kind of live music on TV and things like Jules Holland or, you know, back in the day when you had things like CD UK and, you know, Pepsi Chart and stuff like that, and you had bands on, didn't sound good on the TV, did it? It doesn't sound like a live sound, but whatever they did, they got it to really sound like a, a kind of proper live sound. That's good, but how does it compare to kind of like a real life gig? You know, you don't get the atmosphere that you would get going into a into a gig venue, do you? So how does that differ? Yeah, I, I think that was the thing that that kind of stuck out for me on this. That you know, bands they play a song and then they get that kind of feedback from from the audience. It was a bit of applause from what must have been like their crew. So they had some sort of um, reaction but yeah it really does underline it's a bit like when you're watching football at the moment and there's there's no crowd I know a few teams have started letting crowds back in but generally you know it's quite odd to watch football where there's there's no crowd and they're even saying that some of that has contributed to somehow that some of the games have run and that players are playing with a little bit less pressure in certain ways and I think that's obviously going to affect the way the band sound I think what was interesting for me is you know, I've, I, I said on the episode where we did the interview with the band, I was still trying to get my head around the album and how it works. And I think, you know, the best way to understand a band and some of their music is to see it played live. And I think that definitely that helped. I think that side of it, hearing them play some of these, the songs off uh, Disco Volador live, I think I feel like I've got a better understanding now of, of kind of how it all came together. And just talking about the Orioles and Spotify Unwrapped, because... Didn't you have an interesting, uh, uncover something interesting recently when, when you got your Spotify done? That thing that everybody hates, everyone sharing on social media, by the way. Um, it's your kind of favourite top tunes of the year. Um, Spotify looks at all the data and uh, tells you what you've been listening to mostly. What was yours, Rick? Yeah, it was Ariel's in position one and position two and position three, four and five. And probably if it had gone to 10, it probably would have been 10. So, you know, people might think that it's kind of empty hyperbole on this show and that we love everything that comes on every week and then we lose interest the next. Like, I think that was probably quite stalkerish proof that, um, yeah, I have been, I've been digging this album quite a lot this year. It did make me laugh. I wonder what their thoughts were when they saw that come through. I don't know if they were scared or wanted to run away or what, but it's good, good, all good. But, Going back to our bung a band a bob, 
campaign. Do you think that this gig was worth bunging that band a bob in that way? I think so, yeah. I mean, it was slightly shorter than a normal show. You know, it was just under a, probably an hour and they had a bit of an intermission in the middle, but that was a tenner. I mean, what would you normally pay for a gig? You know, 20 quid, 25 quid for, for your average gig now, or probably a bit less for sort of smaller bands. But I guess, I guess REL's, you'd expect to pay about 20 quid. And I think for a tenner, yeah, it, it, was, it was worth the cash. I guess on the subject of Bunga Banda Bob, something I probably should admit is, you know, we've been talking about this on recent episodes as a campaign we want to get off the ground. Um, I've sort of missed that there's already a thing called Bandcamp Fridays, which I think maybe you you noticed before I did, which is like Bandcamp, the kind of um, sort of creative hub for bands and places that bands can kind of set up and sell merchandise. I've been doing this kind of big drive to support bands every Friday that I'd completely missed. So either their marketing had completely missed me or great minds think alike. But either way, yeah, either if whether you're bunging a band or Bob or getting involved in Bandcamp Friday, it's all for the same um, the same end goal, right? 100%. And I think it's been on social media a lot. And uh, yeah, I've seen it quite quite a lot on, the, on Fridays. So I think it's a really good opportunity to be able to give back and, and keep this industry alive, really. But we need to talk about what's happening this week. Uh, so we have an interview with Young Knives, don't we, later on in the episode. So explain a bit about how we've done something a bit different with this interview, because it's not us, is it? I mean, first of all, well done for calling the Young Knives rather than the Young Knives. I was going to keep a tally of how many times we got that wrong. So uh, gold star to you. And yeah, we, we said earlier in the series we were going to try some different things. We've actually got a guest interviewer this week, none other than Jamie Fullerton, like myself, a former enemy writer. And the eagle-eyed amongst listeners will remember him from episodes we did on on the Libertines and Baby Shambles, uh, specifically the episode we did with Adam Fichek, uh, one of our kind of most popular episodes in the archive uh, last series. And yeah, Jamie's kind of uh, covered the, the career of Young Knives even before they were in the band. He worked, uh, I think, alongside a couple of the band members in HMV, which comes up in the interview, and then kind of subsequently his time at Enemy kind of coincided with uh, with the sort of start of their career and their kind of rise to prominence. So uh, yeah, Jamie got them on the line for an in-depth chat about kind of their 20-year plus career. Um, and yeah, re- really looking forward to hearing this. I used to really like Young Knives. I-, I can't remember exactly where I saw them, but I do have images of them in my head. And I feel like they used to wear suits on stage. And at that point, I always used to think that looked slightly odd. Uh, but I just always used to love how they sounded. And their album, uh, Voices of Animals and Men, I think it was 2006, I think it came out. My favourite favorite song on that, believe it or not, wasn't Weekends in Bleak Days, which is the hot summer song, which everybody knows and loves, but it was actually The Decision. Uh, I absolutely loved that song. And to be honest, I had completely forgotten about this band. So it's been really nice to kind of go back and listen to some of their old stuff as well. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. They did wear. I'm not sure if it was suits on stage. I think maybe the House of Lords, the bassist, used to wear a suit. It was more kind of like nerd chic and like yeah, it was way- yeah, it was a nerd. And I I really remember specifically this one grey suit and pair, a pair of glasses. That's what and a red tie. I think I don't know. It's really weird what sticks in your mind, isn't it? Yeah, and and I think knowing that this is a band that people may remember, but some listeners may not. I've written like a proper Desert Island Dicks intro sort of sort of catch up on who they are so can I do that because I'm really proud of the fact that I've kind of done something semi-professional here please do I haven't heard you do this yet so this is the first for me as well so and I'm going to cover some of the things you've already mentioned there but I don't think that really matters so much so 
Young Knives, they lost the there early in their career, are an indie rock two-piece, previously three-piece, built around the Dartnell brothers, frontman Henry and bassist Thomas, also known by the nickname House of Lords. They formed in the late 90s, but came to prominence in the mid-2000s with their debut album, Voices of Animals and Men, spawning the top 40 smashes she's attracted to, Weekends and Bleak Days, Brackets, Hot Summer, and Here Comes the Rumour Mill. Since then, they've released four further albums, including Barbarians, which came out uh, just this September. And I guess the way that I think of them is if you think of the class of the mid-2000s, and like the Arctic Monkeys of the cool kids at the back of the class, and Franz Ferdinand are kind of the cool and arty ones, Young Knives with the Swats with their hands up at the front, getting pinged with elastic bands. <laughs> Brilliant, I love that. I mean, you're not wrong there, I don't think. But they have got a new album out this year, and I want to know what you think of it, Rick. It's very different, right? So this is the Barbarians LP, right? And it's it's very experimental. You know, one of the things that Jamie mentioned to me uh, before he conducted the interview was, you know, what they've been doing is playing these kind of caravan sessions. They bought a caravan and have been doing kind of virtual gigs to their fans in a caravan. And I think maybe recording material in there or demoing in there and this sounds like this this basically this album sounds like the sound of a band who've been locked in a caravan going slightly mad during uh, lockdown i think you know and you can still see hints of some of those really kind of sharp choruses and and what i think they hate you know they, they hate this description of their music as kind of being angular that kind of angular mid-noughties kind of sound there's still traces of that in there but it's kind of it's engulfed in kind of layers of, you know, electronic kind of gurgles and squiggles and um, even quite metal in some places, I thought. What, what did you make of it? I'm actually really interested to know what, what you've made of something that's quite a challenging listen, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't tell you until now, would I? I, I wanted to keep the cars close to my chest on this one because I think you'll be surprised, but I think it was the, the most brilliantly surprising listen I've, I've done this year, this whole year. Um, and I'm actually, I'd be desperate to see them play this live. I think the first song, you know, Swarm, it, it really hit me that it was very kind of Soul Wax-esque and even The Knife and I even heard some sort of like Tom, Tom Vett style vocals in there. And it was just like, you know, big synth and dirty vocals and it just wasn't what I was expecting at all. So kind of went on and some of the other songs, you know, Society for Coming Up Men, I think it's quite early Franz Ferdinand and I can see some of the same influences potentially sort of orange juice and fire engines. I know Franz Ferdinand were really influenced by those bands when they first started. Um, I hadn't even thought of the word angular, actually. And I, and I actually know what you mean about their old stuff, but I wouldn't call this that at all, uh, which they'll probably be pleased to hear. Um, mm. I even heard Simon and Garfunkel vocals on one of the songs. And it actually, you know, the, the synth and everything that they were, I was kind of hearing, it just took me to Berlin. But I wrote uh, other things I heard, Joy Division, Mogwai. So when you talk about a bit more kind of, um, you know, a bit heavier. Um, and I, I wrote down as well, it's like Ian Curtis has come back to life and written about the darkness of his death. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> wow, heavy, <laughs> heavy. <laughs> I just, that's what I, it, it was dark, but in like such a good way. I really, really liked it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean there. And um, I think what we've probably done a little bit different with this episode as well is finally we've had some permission to play some music. I want to hear a woohoo there. Woo! I'm excited about this. Yeah, so I mean, probably probably to mention to the the listeners, we don't we don't exactly operate on a a multi million pound budget for this podcast. You know, it's it's mainly kind of uh, blood, sweat, and tears that goes into this rather than sort of hard cash. And um, for that reason, we've kind of been umming and ahhing about buying a license to play music and whether that'd be worth doing. So while we've been 
I guess, pondering that when Young Nyes agreed to the interview, said we could play some of their music at the start and end of, of the interview, some of the tunes from, from the new album, specifically Sheep Tick, uh, just to kind of give listeners a flavour. So that's probably a, a good way to segue um, into the interview. Let's do it. Yeah, so here's uh, Young Knives in conversation with Jamie Fullerton. But first, here's, here's a bit of Sheep Tick. Okay, I should be able to speak to Henry. Henry, can you hear me? Hello. How are you doing? I can see lots of guitars lined up on a wall behind you. Are you in the famous Young Knives Caravan? Or one of them? Uh, it's the it's part of our it's our control room studio bit, which is a bedroom. You know, it's a room. That's just as exciting. Yeah. Just just as exciting. And uh, Thomas, can you hear me? Okay, can, can yes. you hear me? And where are I'm, you? I'm I'm in a really uninteresting front room. I think you can see a radiator with bibs on it behind me. Oh yeah, nice. I was. I'm glad you've <laughs> clarified that they're bibs because I can see they're they're, they're multicolored and they're drooping, and yeah. I assumed it was some kind of undergarment sort of drying. But um, no, yeah, not even. Maybe it's a good thing that this is a podcast audio format rather than visual. But um, yeah, how are you guys doing? Um, it's it's a, it's an interesting time for you. It's an exciting time. You just released barbarians your fifth full-length album i have to say uh-huh. full-length because of course you had your half-length debut out back in 2002 yeah. and you've been um doing lots of caravan sessions which are officially called caravan sessions aren't they um how have they been going you've done about 18 of them now right yeah i think we saw that it was we've always we've talked about this for a long long time about um the use of the internet um as a way to do something interesting with music like you can just see the landscape changing and it's one of those things where it changes so slowly in one way that you don't notice it but you definitely know something's going on and uh you sort of think we what is it that we can do with it you know how do we be how do we venture into it without it being shit or as least shit as possible so we talked about it for ages and then the pandemic just kind of threw us into make made us do it um and we would just think i just saw people doing like live streams and i thought as i always do we do we can do that a lot better we can I'm sure we can come up with something better than that and that's a bit more inventive and there's a lot of people sitting with their acoustic guitar or their piano or whatever in their kitchen which was great which is great but i think we just thought people are missing a sort of a show and maybe there's a sort of a show in it we'd always talked about doing like a youtube thing where we recorded a song in a day and videoed it and we tried it not that long ago maybe a year ago me and tom did about four or five or maybe three or four where we spent a whole day writing a song and we filmed it even when like back when ollie was with us probably what six seven eight years ago we were saying why don't we like lock ourselves in a house almost big brother style i guess make a make a um make an album and live stream it make an album in a week and live stream it you know or something even back probably when we were on like one meg dial up you know so it's yeah we've always had that idea 
and this just kind of yeah, that made sort of us sponsor, do spontaneity it. kind of thing yeah it made and, us do um, it did you did you have caravans already did you like commandeer the family caravans and say no we're not gonna be able to go on two week trips to cornwall anymore these are going to be taken over by our sort of psychedelic musical experiments from now on i just had a shit caravan that we bought about for 500 quid about maybe five or six years ago just on a whim we were like let's get a caravan like for the family and it's really really old and uh, we had about two or three holidays in it and then we had a mate live in it for a while and then we used to basically use it for our tour manager and he lived in it because he quite liked it uh, it had a little beer fridge and it had wi-fi and it had uh you know a bed and he just lived he'd be in it because our because we'd had kids and stuff we couldn't just let the whole we used to have everybody stay in the house on tour but um so he was in it for a while and um then it just became a bit of a playhouse you know and it, you definitely wouldn't ever take it on the road and you, there's no i don't know how to get rid of a caravan so it was just there. Yeah, so I ripped down for fire. You have to set it on fire, and it's a big, it's a big fire. It's a bit it's proper Top Gear shit. Yeah. So you definitely we, get a good um, music video out of that, though, I guess. Yeah, we did use it for a couple of music videos, not for setting it on fire. And then we just thought. So I just thought, well, we could. It would be socially distanced if somebody was in the caravan, and we could run the leads out to it. So I pushed it right up against yeah. the house, and uh, we just did it. Yeah, it was at the point where I oh, wasn't so it's allowed one to caravan, go into it's the house. It's not two caravans. Yeah, it's just one caravan. It was at the point where I wasn't allowed to go into his house and we wanted to do things and we decided that obviously if I went and drove to his house and went, you know, just went up the drive and got into the caravan and he was inside, then uh, we wouldn't come into contact apart from looking at each other on iPhones. Yeah, the first day I actually, I actually laid it all out uh the day before wired it all up put the cameras in got them working and basically leave left them on for overnight so that any any disease i had would you know we was everyone was <laughs> doing it like really by the book and you just went in the caravan luckily it was basically warm and uh sort of. plugged up and then we started doing it and the first day we tried it because we were just let's do a session let's try it and see if there's any good ideas. Someone asked me about it recently and said, what ideas did you reject? And how did you come up with different ideas for it? And essentially, we just did the first thing that happened. Um, and that day, we were like, well, this all works. And I've managed to work out how to stream to Facebook. Should we just press go and do a couple of songs? So the first one is, the first thing is the first day we tried it. And um, uh, I, I, it just the format was just decided by us talking shit and doing stuff i mean so, you know it's, yeah. that's what it is that's what it is i think i think what's, i think what's interesting <laughs> is uh, as an alternative way to sort of you know gig or play live or somehow connect with fans it is interesting how it is a much more unpredictable format because you know when bands go on the road usually they're playing a different town every night but they're usually playing exactly the same set list every night mm. you know maybe bar one or two changes and if they're playing on larger production, it's even down, you know, they have to play the same set list because it's the same lights going off at the same exact moments. And it can be very yeah. sort of, I don't know, if you've ever seen, a, obviously you would be in the band, but like if you've ever seen a band on the same tour played two or three times as I did as part of my work at NME, you sort of, you know, it does lose that magic a bit because you know it's it's mm. almost like a play or something, right? When it's the same. But what you guys are doing, it's, it, I mean, by their very nature, they are so unpredictable and everyone is completely different. Like one's got 
strange Argos adverts from like the 1990s and one might have something else. So in a way, it's kind of sort of tips that predictability and um, routine on its head a bit, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the I guess the, I mean, we never played the same set on a on a, a two night. Well, I think we may have done, but rarely because it was so depressing that we were quite adamant proponents of keeping it interesting every night anyway even when we had big productions and lighting engineers we were like well you just have to they just had to go with it that most people are cool with that i think i don't think you have to do the same set every night unless you've got like a kind of a visual massive visual show i suppose that all needs reprogramming but that's big right i mean that's that's u2 shit so i don't think we ever got anywhere near that I think it's a really interesting format because I think uh, it's a you know people were saying well it ain't, it's not a gig and I just thought well that's just that's just shit you know it's it isn't a gig of course it's not a gig but then it doesn't just have to be sub gig it's a bit like the way that online journalism was always seen as below print journalism you know it's just yeah. different <laughs> and and look at things now <laughs> I know and look what a wonderful world we live in. But I mean, it is in a se- essentially it's as a for- as a format in se- itself is just another uh, way of doing something. And of course, there's massive gaps in between, and there's no sound yeah. guy, and uh, so you have to. I mean, I, we were ve- I was very wary about doing it after the first one. Well, the first one was pretty impromptu, so we just played some tracks, and then we put together the first show, and I felt really weird after it because I just thought. It's a bit like well, being a TV presenter. Yeah. Yeah. There was and there was the awkwardness of finishing a song and hearing like nothing. Like because yeah. you obviously used to people like not well, at least murmuring and tutting and uh, saying not very good or whatever it is. Mm. But it but not to well, get just nothing. getting some kind of reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I think the like first couple of sh- the first couple of shows we actually did like a we'd stop. And then there's bits where we kind of like applaud each other. Mm. <laughs> why we, really why we put the videos it... in because we thought it's quite good to just cut straight to yeah. something and have a moment wow. to like gather your thoughts. Yeah, it was just that was a, the natural. Sorry, yeah, I just um, I know what you mean. I, I was I did this um, spoken word thing the other day on like this Zoom um, event, which was like replacing a local gig that happened in the village, the village nearby, and like I couldn't hear any reaction at all. And it was supposed to be slightly funny, like at moments, and you you sort of hit a beat mm. you think is going to get a laugh, and you, and like it's just silence, yeah. and you're thinking like, oh, don't take that as a reaction. You've got to just keep going, kind of pretend that people are keep like going. giving a little nod and a snicker or something. It's yeah, it's 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 difficult to get your head around, um, but, and like you say, when you're used to sort of the live format, that and, like you... having that that Sorry. human interaction in front of you. It means that you sort of uh, you have to rely on your own uh, feeling about how the the music went, I guess, which is quite nice. You you sort of just have to inter- internally go, oh, that was a good version of it, or that was a shit version of it, um, and which is quite an interesting thing. But it's also kind of interesting because uh, it for for a long while before that, and before we put this record out, we're adamant <laughs> in, in a way that we had to be doing, that we'd written a really serious record and we'd written something that was, um, you know, we needed to, to be taken seriously. And in a funny sort of way, it broke all that, just destroyed all that in one in one fell swoop because we were just being dickheads on, on a camera. But I don't think it really mattered. Do you feel there was a, um, a sort of inconsistency between the, I guess, sort of more quirky tone of, 
you messing sure around do. in your caravans and this like dark dense album that you've made about um you know the um the lack of human uh, mental progression over the last two I decades think we, i think we always have Mil- that problem milgram anyway. and things we, yeah we've always had yeah. that we've always had that problem we've always had that I, I mean if it's a problem or not i if it doesn't jar with everybody with people then it's not a problem it kind of sometimes it jars with me and i think you know we started doing old songs on it and stuff like it was part proper party band thing and uh you know we always said oh, we're not just doing old songs we're gonna do versions of old songs but we had no time you had just had to the good thing about it is is you had no time to consider your fucking coolness and actually, I think that's a really <laughs> yeah. good. I think that's really good. I, you know, I I think that's really. It's like a. Re, it's a reaction. It was a response. You know, and and it wasn't. So, so over- when you say you've always had that problem, do you mean being taken seriously? And is that something in relation to um, you having? I guess it was that line of having kind of funny, interesting, slightly quirky, wry, dry lyrics but not stepping over into the kind of wackiness that so many bands yeah, and artists but do. We, but we we had that, but then we also would, we, we're not like, I don't think we ever came across as very cool and we could never stand on stage and not say anything stupid. Yeah, it was more Whereas the stage. It, would, it was more the stage thing, I think, not the not the actual music itself. I, 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 we played with so many bands where I watched them and they don't crack a crack a joke the whole thing and they just kind of play the songs and then they say something very serious about this song's called this and it's all about this and they play it and i just think oh my god how do they keep their composure and just keep that character up and i was like uh, oh actually maybe that's because that's what they're like and but we we're not capable of doing it because i'd just crack i can't i don't know you know i mean even if we wrote a song and it's really serious and it's about something serious um i can't yeah, I don't know. It's I'm never so not... super serious, I mean. I mean, there's always got to be something in it that is um, got a sense of something. There's, you know, it's like an element of humour in everything, I think. But then even, you know, Scott Walker had an element of humour in most of his songs and they were d- d- deep and depressing and dark, but they'd always have something, you know, what was that? That Always I remember that line about... the. Jiggling, one. No, jiggling like a river dancer's nuts or something. In yeah. is that a Scott Walker lyric? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know one of his. Is later, that on Scott Four? I don't remember that. Oh, oh no, Bish Bosh. Bish Bosh. It's got jiggling like okay. a river oh, dancer's nuts. Oh, I know Bish Bosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those. <laughs> like a tapir, nosh, tapir noshing futs is the one I always remember. Do you know? <laughs> I had to, <laughs> what I had to, I had to review one of um, Scott Walker's like latter day albums. I think it was a few years before he died, and I, you know, I really, really, really tried with it. And I listened and I listened and I listened, and I just had to go after like a week of listening. This is just total, total nonsense, and I'm not enjoying a second of it. <laughs> oh, there you go. And like, give it a kicking, and it's like, oh, but you know, you can only be, you can only be sincere and honest, right? Maybe yeah, I just you wasn't getting say it, it but... like how you feel about it, yeah. Yeah, you, you've, you've, yeah, you've, um, you've got to be honest. So you're wrong, um, of course you're wrong, but you know, no, wait. yeah, you're I entitled you're, to I your opinion, however wrong up, it might be. I think he's held up too much, maybe, but I mean, there's a lot of what he did. Which I, I got inspired by a lot of what he did in that, um, it was just so far out and so just fucked off the whole any kind of formatting or you know and that's quite exciting um but i agree that there's there's a lot of things like that that you're very inspired by it and you listen to a bit of it then you think but i couldn't listen to a whole album of it 
too much. I'll come back and listen yeah. to the rest later. But also, also, I think I think it's a good thing for artists to not feel anchored by any kind of reverence or even a specific sound that they've kind of become known and revered for. Like that's that lush Scott Walker sound, and it was on Scott Four around those albums. That amazing sort of orchestral pop um, might have built that platform him, but. Um, you know, there's no reason why he has to sort of be reprising that 40 years later or something. No. He's got the last shadow puppets are doing it for him, right? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I don't know, are they? I hope never to hear that. <laughs> no, but they sound that that was that was the album that kind of inspired them to yeah. do all that. Yeah, it? yeah. So, um, um, yeah, I think it's kind of cool to just to go off into weird tangents and things. And I think that's I think that's what artists should do. But do you kind of do you, do you sort of feel any connection in relation to that? Because I know the music you're making now, it's so much darker and it's so much denser. Um, I think I think more interesting and certainly eclectic than the kind of music you're making around your first couple of albums. Is that a reaction um, against it or is it just... Um, I don't know, like, like, do you, do you completely progression. sort of separate those? Ear, ear? Yeah. Yeah, they're very, I mean, there was elements of it. And I think when we were, for, I just think now we're much more comfortable with making music. There was a realisation or there's been a number of realisations over the years of what we've been doing where we're saying, where we go, why is it that we like Throbbing Gristle, but we sound like the fucking Kaiser Chiefs? You know what I mean? Why is that not, or whatever it is, not, you know, I was having it's a discussion just... with my wife the other day about the same thing, and we were talking about um, that the, the the single "Up All Night" that we did, and there was a discussion at the time where we re- wrote it, and um, we were sat in the studio, and we were like, "We should not play that to the record label because it's so cheeky, chappy, chirpy," and like, I wouldn't. It's just it will be the it will be the single, and. Um, it, it's it's it, we shouldn't be doing that sort of thing and it got played to them and it was the single and my wife said to me the other day she went yeah that sort of um she went that's that sort of screwed you a bit didn't it because then everybody thought you were that for ages you probably shouldn't have done i was like yes i know i know thanks very much yeah which is why we kind of work so much better when we retreat away from all external influence um i i, I felt it so many times on so many occasions when people have said uh, they want to help us and it still keeps happening when people say, oh, I'd love to get involved. I really would like to help you or maybe I can fund some of your record or maybe I could, you know, and it's the same with like if you talk to uh, when you have like a manager or anybody who's working with you you have to we have to lay down the law and it seems re- really dickish but we have to be so cuz we're so susceptible to like a normal human being to any kind of external influence like if someone says to you like when we did our third album oh you're you need to buy your freedom someone actually said that to us and um what did that mean what did that mean oh you need a hit single do some commercial songs Oh, by the way, you're... you're and that was, a, that was for the second album or...? Uh, Ornaments from the Silver Arcade. We thought, what an amazing... What a... Let's just roll with this idea and experiment with the idea of writing pop music and knowing it's pop music and doing it. But we never really got behind the idea and therefore came out with something half-arsed that some people like but never felt like something that we wanted to release... 
it was very that whole thing is very confusing because so many voices around you and so many people and i think it just it, everything has a, anything that anyone says to you has an impact on the way you make a decision it's just like being buffeted i think it's like normal life but but it's but, so you said so you were kind of feeling that even around the second album super abundance because you know your first album came out in 2006 voices of animal and men really sort of fated album you know got you i, I don't know would you call it a cult following but yeah, um but, which know, of course was of... written in isolation as well you know it was written in isolation yeah. before it, but you, before but you it said, happened but you said that um that that lead single off that um up all night um you said you were kind of wary of that being the, the i guess the um sort of flagpole song but you know that was a song that you wrote and you were sort of happy to put forward and stuff why did you even write a song like that I if know. you didn't want that to be part of the sound we, Does it, well, did you just God feel no. that you were in this mode you had to kind of replicate something maybe it was the second album that was actually by the time we were doing it and we were writing quite a dark a much darker album in a way although I think there was always darkness on the first album we were always keen on that side of things um, and that single seemed so it was too uh, you know, you write it, you don't know what it is when you've done it and you need a minute to look at it. You know, you can't, there's no point in judging something before you've even finished it and you don't know what it is. It's like when you start, you know, some stop doing a painting and you look at the, you've just put the wash on the thing and you're like, oh, this is shit. I'll stop. You know, you haven't even put any kind of marks on really. It's just, you can't second guess what you're doing until you've done it. So we wrote it we were playing it and we were like it's kind of cool it could because it could be so many different things as well it didn't have to be so fucking indie schmindy it didn't need it to was. be but it, but, it, <laughs> but that's how it turned out and i mean whatever i mean it's like it it, it was a an obvious single to transgressive and you know we took we did we 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 didn't you you can't just tell everyone to it's very difficult to say anyone who's got an opinion can fuck off because they're the ones that have signed you and you think i don't know whether i'm right or wrong i don't know i mean i don't mind the song but is it should it be put out it's so many there's too much thought sometimes and too much analysis going into it and that's why you know something like barbarians where nobody had an opinion about it because nobody heard it, uh, which meant that we just had to be happy with it. Yeah. Okay. So you were saying that you were really wary of, um, you know, presenting that um, up all night as setting the tone for that album. Um, you know that that album, Super Abundance. I, I I'm a big fan of that album, but I think it's fair to say it didn't really connect with the fan base as much as the first one. Didn't do quite as well, and you know you end up leaving the label afterwards. Is it actually kind of hard that that ended up happening based on those decisions that were kind of made that you were kind of wary on in the first place? Did you think, hey, that's not what we wanted, and that's ended up, you know, with that happening afterwards? Mm, no, because you have to take responsibility for it. I don't think there's nothing that's ever happened that. I, you just roll. I, I've never been like gutted by things like that. It was weird. I mean, I was done with Warner Brothers and all that by the time they didn't want to do it anymore. Obviously, if they'd have said, yeah, we'd have been like, oh, great, more money. Let's make another record. But um, it was a, there was a point at which those things had annoyed us to the extent that, that when it ended, you were like, we weren't just like, oh, shit, the band. I know I've heard lots of people who've gone, oh, shit, the band's over. I just thought, great, we're f great. 
I really did just think, great. I mean, we never expected to get that far with it. We never expected to get to where we did. Everything was like a Billy bonus. Everything's a bit of a dream state anyway when you go through something like that. That we were, we felt like, well, something, I always just think something will turn up. I always think like that. I don't think, oh, God, we're not going to do it. I just thought we'll find someone else to do the record with or we'll find another way to do it, and which we did, and that didn't work out particularly well. And then we got to the point where we were, like, really railing against it when we did Sick Octave. We really were, like, I mean, the whole, even the album name was meant to mean that, you know, fucked up music is great. You know, stuff that's weird and bollocks and it was almost like I I always liken it to um, when you're writing an essay at school and they're teaching you how to write essays and they say to you refer back to the question and I always think we give you tell give yourself an album title that when you go back and look at it you think oh I remember now I'm not supposed to be doing this kind of shit easy listening middle of the road I'm supposed to be doing something that makes you think what the fuck is this when it when you turn it on and that was just the whole premise we said to our manager at the time when we when we dumped him we were like we don't want to do this with you we don't you're not going to like this nut this next record we're going to write we didn't want to write a record like we did we tried that way it didn't work we're just going to go and do our own music and you are definitely not going to like it so i'm afraid that cut in this is the point at which it ends um and it was all those things it's always i think it's all been part of a long and winding process towards us working out how you can be a modern band and behave like it was the 70s all over again where you were free to make whatever music you wanted um and the answer is don't rely on music to make money and find a way to do it outside and, and you know find a way to do it so that it's just something that you love doing rather than some fucking you have to go and do shine festival with the real stone roses and you know did you do that <laughs> no but we we said yeah and then the festival fell through because it was 10 grand <laughs> yeah we, we definitely said yes to some things like that it was ten thousand pounds yeah. Or 13 grand or something it was yeah. something like well that keeps us that's our wages for like six months you know paying yourself at the minimum you can that's you can't you just how can you say no to it and it's a gig yeah. you go on, on and you play for an hour and... yeah you've got rock up it's only in fucking coventry it's, <laughs> it's not even it's not even an excuse that since it's it's three hours away it's 45 minutes away and it's thirteen thousand pounds and top loader are headlining <laughs> you know you've got and you you know i mean of course that's the pressure that you get because you're like, wow, how we've got to make this an industry as well. But, you know, at that point we decided we all knew that it was like, right, we're going to have to get shitty jobs on the side or whatever it is. And we're going to oh, have yeah. to make it work. We did a whole and bunch of stuff like that where you just were like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're doing another one like this because we need that. We need the money. We've got if we're going to keep doing it this way where we live, where we, where we have to make enough money to live off it and then do music every day. And it was just just doing, yeah, things where people would offer you enough money. I remember doing one at the Scala where some production company offered us a load of money to do a gig and then film it. And then we were like, I don't think they're going to pay us. I don't think this is going to happen. And then they doubled the amount. And we were like, okay then. And they, yeah, they definitely didn't pay us. <laughs> they just we went and did this big. They had outside broadcast trucks. It was at, not yeah. at, it was at Coco. When? Coco, when was this? Yeah. 
Oh, years to ago. 20, 2009, maybe? Right. 2008, So a couple of years after um, Superabundance. Or maybe just around, just around yeah, Superabundance. Just b- between the two. And it was, <laughs> there was a whole, you know, we like, uh, you just see the industry changing and you see the industry floundering. We could see it day, you know, almost day one. Yeah. And you start well, let's, to let's, think. Let's go back a little bit because, I mean, I remember when I first. Um, met you guys and stuff. We're going back again. We're going. We're going to go further slightly back. back. Yeah, more retro. Okay, retro. We're going to <laughs> sepia, sepia tint. I'm going to sepia okay. tint. Back um, to HMV no. stockroom. Oh God, we could go that far back as well. Yeah. Let's do that briefly. Yeah. I've forgotten about that. Okay, so we should mention that I used to work. I mean, I was like the lowest rank of 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 all at HMV in Oxford. I was working, I don't, not even Saturday boy, I was working Sundays, I think, on the till. And Thomas, you worked there and Ollie worked there as well, am I right? We, yeah, yeah. What was working yeah, at HMV I just... like? Because the thing is, like, HMV, it's like, I know, I guess people who are kind of younger than us might not realise how kind of important an institution HMV actually was for people who are really into into music. And, like, it's, it, I mean, it was a shop, yeah, but, like, I don't know. How, how was well, your it was good. You could go there? and browse, couldn't you? That was the thing. You could go and browse, and it had pretty most things. But when you didn't have the internet to browse on, so it was, yeah, it was pretty good. As opposed to like a small independent record shop where you're looking for, you know, something specialist. But it was, you know, you could just go and browse through everything. I quite did liked it affect, HMV. Did it affect? Did it affect your kind of? Um, you know how you sort of thought about music or played music, the kind of people oh, you're yeah. meeting. I mean, did, 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 were you were you friends we with Ollie? Were you making it, music we? with Ollie before you guys? Yeah, were we were, and, and and I and and I mean, I was not very musically um, schooled. I don't think I had a couple of friends who were like cooler than me and like cool cool bands at school and union stuff, but I didn't know loads of stuff. And I remember going there and just thumbing through like Mojo or whatever was on the counter and be like, oh, what's who's... I remember, I was going to say about you, my first memory of you was going up into the stockroom and you were listening to The Fall. And I was, I think I went, who's this? This makes me sound kind of cool, I think. Yeah, it does. But I was like, who's this band? They're quite good. And you went, it's The Fall. And I was like, oh, they're quite good. I'll have to check out this The Fall. (laughs) Yeah, we learned loads. I mean, you just bring... Ollie worked in rock and pop and he was like, you know, so he brought, he had all the kind of the last 40 years, 50 years of like popular music. Tom worked in world jazz and fucking, so you'd always bring home stuff that was like, you know, Bolivian nose Hey guys, let's listen to some free jazz. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it was quite a good, you know, that's where we discovered all of the things that kind of set us off. You know, things you'd heard of and you were suddenly in a position to... You know, we had different influences. I remember Ollie bringing home Entertainment by Gang of Four right right at the start and thinking, cool, wow, this is exciting. You know, getting quite excited by all those kind of things. We'd had very, we'd had a very sort of like sheltered Britpop, mainstream Britpop upbringing, you know, before that. So, yeah, it was good. I mean, and who would have thought there, that a got... few, years, few years later, um, Andy Gill from Gang of Four produces your album as well? Yeah, about two and a half years later, after I yeah. heard his record, <laughs> we in fact, it, in fact, we'd we we'd listened to it and we got really into that record, and then we played at the Zodiac, I think, with the the venue the venue in Oxford with the Future Heads, and they'd said, "Oh, this guy Andy Gill from the Gang of Four is did he uh, produced some EP of theirs or a single or something," 
And we were like, when when we were asked, who do you want to produce your album? We were like, oh, well, we heard this guy, Andy Gill from The Gang of not really knowing anything about what he'd done or anything, but just like, oh, I liked that record that we found in the kind of, in the sales section. Yeah, but this is the, this is what's great. I mean, a lot of people kind of assume that people like yourselves in bands are just these complete, hundred percent music nerd aficionados who just know all this music like right down to the bone. Where actually you're just like the rest of us, and just you know sometimes it's just something you found because you heard it in HMV and found it in the sale or something, right? I mean, I look back on it. I th- I almost look back on what I knew about music and think I was writing music when I knew basically. I hadn't even got into the Stone Roses. I'd missed all. I missed all that, and that was like my era. And uh, you know, I'd missed all of that early Britpop and all that. And I was writing music. We were doing it as a band when we were sixteen, and we were writing songs. And it must have been. I mean, it's akin to like outsider music. It's a. It's like music by people who've never listened to music before. You've had your parents' record collection. You got into Bon Jovi for a couple of years when you were 12 and then you started writing songs. It's it's quite so I think it is you you're interested in you like songs uh, and then you start to investigate music more because you're interested in absorbing more about it and you listen to it in a very different way. Yeah. And you kind of that's when you sort of you can form yourself identity a lot around those kind of things and those influences as well. And I, I, one, of, one of my abiding memories of working in HMV was that I thought that Tom and Ollie, I thought you guys were just just really cool. I liked your style and you were just both very funny guys and you used to come in um, wearing your kind of, you know, your tweed charity shoots and your and your ties. Then you would just take them off and put your HMV shirt over the, over the front and then you know, go and work. And then a couple of years later, when I saw you playing live, and that was kind of your image on stage. A lot of people might have thought that was kind of a contrived stylistic thing that you decided on to have as your band thing. But, um, you know, that was actually kind of like the style that you, um, you know, that you that you wore and the identity you had then. Was that like kind of a, a gang kind of style that you wanted to have and like wear those kind of clothes and things together? Or was it just, I mean, where, where did that kind we, of come from? We it started with Ollie. It's Ollie. Yeah. It's Ollie's. It's he Ollie's just dressed like an old, a really old man early on. But it's his sister, his sister and her friends all went to Hull University and they were all, it basically starts with Jarvis Cocker, I would say. And I don't know where Jarvis Cocker started from, but his his was this, when we were 16, 17 and trying to go to the pub, uh, we didn't have nice clothes to wear into town. And at ta- Ashby de la Zouche was very much a town of middle-class people and working-class people meeting together on the high street and one calling the other nonces or whatever. You know what I mean? it was There was a real tension on the street. And uh, there'd be all sorts... Of, and we would just embraced it. We were like, let's... All we could do was go to the charity shops and buy s- s- nylon suits with flares and stuff and go down the down the town and people would question with, with a bit of eyeliner on yeah and it, we kind of were like yeah let's get let's see what happens we invited it a little because there was always police out so you were quite safe uh but we invited it and it just went from there i don't i don't know where i think the tweed i picked up on because there was a lot of it around and i thought well these are quite this is quite fun because they ollie was quite polyester shirts and ties and definitely there was a jarvis thing he had the nhs specs yeah. and yeah, he, I think he looked our, kind of cool, I think, and sort of geek chic, right? Yeah, yeah he yeah, pulled he it off. Had that. 
He was the That's not what I meant. Sexy bunny. No, he, he was the sexy bunny li- in the bun, that's true. He'd wear it with a little leather jacket or he'd have like, you know, it was definitely stylish, flat-fronted, Farrah trousers. You know, it was that look. Um, whereas I was like slightly plump and could get into all these old man. I couldn't get into most of that and went and just thought, I quite like the tweed in the charity shop. That's even worse. Do you know what I mean? It's not even cool. But you, but so it, I, you well, kind I of stumbled of on this um, on this as a as a band identity in the end because it, it worked, didn't it? I used to stage? work in I used to work in an office, and that's how I dressed when I went to. I still had the ties that I wore on stage was definitely I had corduroy jackets and tweed jackets, and I'd wear them to the office. And I went to the office party. It was at like the NEC Birmingham, and everybody was you know everyone was white tie and d- dinner jackets, and I went in a three piece brown safari suit with a belt, and you know like some fucking horrible slip on white shoes. And one of the big sales executives came up to me. He was shit faced and he was like, you're right. You're right. We are all cunts. So he (laughs) thought I was, he thought I kind of was making a statement that I was like, just, it was my, it was felt like the big, it was just a way of not being anonymous and fuck you. And I couldn't stand that kind of work. Yeah. Stand that sort of sales roles and, yeah. stuff that i was stuck in for years while we tried to do it so yeah it felt it felt like the right move it always got a reaction did you guys um in, in your brothers who's the eldest brother out of you two me the, the oldest right. looking one okay <laughs> um did you always play music to get like like how far back does that musical connection go were you playing music as kids or is it something that you kind of discovered um, as a teenager and like um more, yeah, how did that dynamic work? yeah teenager i got i went i actually met ollie at i changed schools um uh so i went to a school where i didn't knew no one um in ashby um and um because i wanted to do drama or something so i went to this school uh that i didn't know anybody at and in the end i met ollie and i just thought he's fucking great he's so cool he goes smoking and all sorts of stuff and uh he just had a big he i'd got a guitar and i'd played with a couple of mates like acoustic but he'd got at his house, he, he lived in like this old farmhouse. His dad was a doctor, so they had a bit of money. And they lived in a farmhouse where they had a pool table on the top floor, full-size snooker table, sorry, on the top floor, drum kits, bass guitars. His dad was like a Clapton status quo fan. Had so they had like strats. <laughs> it was a bit of weird. They had strats and Fender amps and it's, they'd all been bought like electric instruments for birthdays and stuff. You know, we had no- nothing. So I just used to bike over there every opportunity I had just and I was like, I can write songs with with the stuff that's at Ollie's house. And Ollie just wanted to play drums. And then I, I think you just started to we just start. I just started to take you because we needed a bassist and they had a bass there. So that's, you know, it's always the younger sibling who ends up um, like, yeah, I'm again, I when I was asking the cribs the same kind of questions, Ross, um, the of the brother of the um it's, the, it's gary and um ryan the two twins and they're the eldest and i said oh ross why do you play drums and he's like well because i'm the youngest and they just made me play drums yeah that's how it works well i i was i was just a bedroom guitarist and nobody wanted to play with me so i was quite happy didn't have anybody else well i no nobody i didn't know anybody that played guitar particularly or wanted to be in bands so they went do you want to play bass i said i haven't got a bass 
So you can borrow up. There's one at the house. Great. Ollie's brother's I mean, got a base. Yeah. Ollie's great. brother's got a base. They've got a um, Juno. They've got a. They had. They were all in bands, and they like had parents that were in bands, and there was just instruments all over the place. It was like I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang out here, and I used to hang out in the in the music room at school, even though I never did music. I just liked the music room because it was full of the kind of people that you could just mess about there and there was a drum kit there and old guitar, you know, crappy old electric guitars and stuff and it just seemed like the place to hang out. So I, I think I'd done a band already and then, but it was not my band, it was someone else's and I'd kind of learned how to play a bit of shit guitar and uh, yeah, Ollie, Ollie's was definitely escaping from uh, living in a little village with no one around it unless they, you know, unless you wanted to go and smash some bottles somewhere. So when did that come become a band rather than just something you were bashing around in um, pretty quick expansive games room? And you were called Pony Club first, right? We were called Simple Pastoral Existence. Oh, of course, okay. <laughs> but it was quite late on, actually. I mean, it was like it was only I only really sort of met up with him and started hanging out with him. He was in he'd done drumming, and I'd done a few gigs with my band uh, at some local gigs. And little, you know, like at the sport, you know, at the sports center, we'd done like one or two. And then we started one and we did our first gig when we were in sixth form, but it must have been towards the end of sixth form. And then it was all, we were at uni and we used to go back and try and do like stuff in the summer holidays and stuff because I never found anybody at uni. So after that, I was like desperate to let's move in because I'd never found anybody else that was just so biddable. <laughs> Ollie, whatever it was. But Ollie, play drums on my song, all right then. <laughs> He's a really you good know. drummer. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, really, really but, good. Like, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, I mean, he's he's always been just quite... He just went with the flow. That's just how he always was. Yeah. Um, so, um, and always... Then he moved... When did you move to Oxford? Or Oxfordshire? Uh, a couple of years we messed around doing jobs, because that's what you're supposed to do. And then we just were like... What I just wanted, I walked, went up to Chester, and I just thought, I don't like it up here. I don't know anybody again. I like, and you, you should be like, why are we not like moving closer towards our mates that we've already got? You know, let's just go. And he was in London, so I moved. We moved to Oxford just to get somewhere a bit more like we thought might be more um, our scene, and we could do maybe do. I went. I thought Oxford's a good place to start because of like its history. Yeah, and maybe we could do a band here because of Radiohead and Supergrass. And when was that? Was that just before you released The Young Knives Are Dead? In that was two thousand and two, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a couple I, of we years moved before, there. Yeah. We moved there ninety nine. It felt like forever to actually. We couldn't get any shows or anything when we moved in. We yeah, just rehearsed down the village hall in Kirtlington and um, emailed Night Shift and the Shifty Disco Records and promoters and were like, Yeah, this is in? Night Shift, the um, local um, we, kind of fancy. Not right? even. E- yeah, not even emailed. We used to ring them. <laughs> yeah, emailed. Sorry, I'm getting confused yeah. about what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting, right. We used to write them a letter and <laughs> take it down to the offices and post it through the door. Yeah. yeah so 2002, that, yeah. you um, you released uh, The Young Knives Are Dead, which was your first mini album on Shift Disco, the local label. And then I think I must. I think I remember seeing you you're guys. Doing the complete, you're doing the complete history, aren't you? Basically, here we're doing. <laughs> well, we've we've sort of jumped. We've jumped around quite a lot here, yeah. haven't we? So I'm trying to keep. I'm trying yeah. to sort of go back onto a chronological thing. So at least we're making some kind of sense. We did an EP with Shifty Disco, and we had the support of. We suddenly got the support of the Oxford music scene, um, and then the EP 
the guy do, running shifty disco i thought kind of basically went off us we were just driving us and it basically all went very very quiet we got a write up in the enemy that said mm, maybe they just picked up guitars because they heard the strokes or maybe it's um a bit better you know maybe it but it's quite interesting or whatever the review was it was more cynical than that but the, yeah, the that wasn't was, me by the way it's no, it's quite interesting and then it all went very quiet for us after 2002 we were just like working jobs and driving ourselves around and we just the people that we had met we just kind of asked them to help us find different things to do and 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 ollie went ollie we were on shifty disco ollie was dating the uh, emily who ran shifty disco partly or worked at shifty disco and she basically left and started a management company and they were saying, we, we will manage you, we'll manage you, we'll manage you. And we were like, no, that's a bad idea, getting the drummer's girlfriend to manage us. That's a bad. So we put it off for ages and ages and ages. And then we met the guy that was basically her friend from Banbury that was running it. And he, he was actually quite in, intense and quite serious and obviously really was like, I, I will do what I can to help, you know, really sold it. And we thought, well, fuck it, we might as well give it a go. And it was all, it's all, it's all, you know, it wasn't based on, it's not meritocracy being in music. He had a big gob and he went and found record labels. He wanted to start as a manager. He wanted to be a big shot in London. And he went with us and he thought this is the, he obviously saw something in it, thought well, this I, is the right time for bands like this. I think also to, you, you, you underestimate how much we did it. Because at the time, I remember we just, we, we pretty much spent the whole time ringing people up and organising gigs and playing gigs non-stop before we met him we kind of didn't really stop. yeah to like 10 people to 10 people <laughs> yeah but i think we were, no i know but i think we were just playing the whole time we were either practicing or we were playing gigs down the bull and gate yeah. or wherever we could get a gig and yeah. i think it just pays off you get better and you you get you learn from playing and people's reaction and i think we got pretty good and he, he had a similar uh work ethic so it kind of it, that's what about song, really what songwriting like did you kind of get to a period where you sort of felt like you were in the zone and you know maybe those songs just started coming and they just feels kind of different to what was before and did that or, or is it not quite as, as as simple as that i mean i'm making it sound like it all suddenly there's like a magic magic moment or something but maybe it's it more of like an more of an attrition thing of... It felt like it took quite a long time to write songs, but then I think time passes. Take is a, you know, it feels longer when you're that that young, maybe as well. So it wasn't that much time. I, we'd done our dead, and I, you know, once you've done, which was our first EP, and when you've done something, you look back and you think, how do I write the songs that are as good as that? And I do that. I still do that to this day. Every time I finish a record. I have to listen to it for six months and realise that I don't want to do that one again. I find it quite hard to get out once you put everything into it to, to write another song. But of course, we were just playing gigs. So we were definitely, um, we definitely felt like we had to have more material. So we we wrote quite hard and we practised quite hard. We lived together together so every night we were working on stuff i was always working on stuff just acoustic guitar plugged into a shit computer down the thinking how do we record ourselves how do we get and these it, exciting uh, early you know. on as well we did a lot of um things live where we were always we we did a lot of trying stuff out live that we kind of thought wasn't going to work that we were just going to do for one night just try 
you know, like I remember we did a song that was all just kind of scratching the guitar strings in a kind of rhythmical way. I can't even remember much more about it now. But things like that where we just like, well, we'll just give it a go. We'll try all these things and see if if it works and just how people, if everybody says boo or everybody says mm. yay. You'd done fine art. So Tom had done performance art at uni. And I think that, and I think that whole, you'd done a couple of quite um, like big sort of performance art pieces for like your final works and stuff and video stuff as well. And you were quite tuned into that. And we were kind of moving. I think we were definitely putting an element of that into the live shows where we were like, we could just, we were like anything that would almost, it was, it would have to be so obtuse that it would make us laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I remember supporting a band. I remember supporting a band. The first band, I can't remember what they called. Oh, I know what they were called. There was a band called Mattress. And it was our <laughs> first a great support. band, eh? <laughs> yeah, but they were, they were just like the enemy. You know, they had that whole we're in a fucking band, you know, attitude and you're the shit on the bottom of my... They were up from Oxford, but they, they had that sort of... Mattress. Uh, lad kind of, we could write girl. They had pretty girlfriends and they drank too much beer and... And I, we were just like, wow, that is the worst form of, you know, we, it was always, uh, how can we subvert the people are watching this and we're going to do, and we, I think that's quite a lot of why we got the support from people in Oxford is that people would turn up to see what we do. Um, because we were always looking for a way to push the sort of live thing and is that, is that where your break more... dancing came from because i'm used to is it in the pink used to break dance <laughs> yeah yeah used to break dance yeah 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 you're always looking for like a bit a set piece a, a bit <laughs> novelty a bit. item yeah well, whatever it, well, it, yeah and some of well, some of it doesn't work and some of it does i mean yeah. we did some s- stupid shit that like we did what? something once where we gave every we bought a whole load of torches for the whole audience and we had a song where all the lights went out and I can't even remember what was. We got everybody to do just um, space harmonies. Space harmonies, where you just everybody kind of harmonised for 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 five minutes. Everyone just just goes, (laughs) oh, the whole the whole audience and and us, yeah, space harmonies. Turn your torches on and off. It's quite good fun, though, actually. I think. So um, yeah, you um, end up getting signed to Transgressive Records. When you do that deal, is that? I mean, do, do you think? Oh, this is it. We've made it. No, they were excited. a little label. They were, they were, what were they, 16 years old or something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they had this very strange cool. little um, shabby cool. office in London, I remember, yeah. I was yeah, excited. I knew they were cool, but we didn't. No, because we're always expecting the worst. That's my yeah. default. Me and him both default, our default position is, like, this isn't going to go well. Um, and we didn't know that they were, you know, they were, they, something weird happened there where they, we sort of signed a deal with a, we got in with an indie label and they suddenly got bought up by a major. And I'm pretty sure our manager was all over that shit. He he knew that was going to happen. I'm sure of it. I don't know. But it was so cl- quick between like this little indie label that want to sign you up that do a singles club. And yeah. then suddenly and it was like, like white heat, like these sort of trendy club nights and things. Yeah. But still very, very yeah. indie and kind of alternative. But then, yeah, they got bought by Warners, right? Just right there and then, right as we signed, it was. But didn't you see that I as a good know. thing? I guess it's just a thing. Yeah. I do. You'd, um, I'd never really thought too hard about the oh, you know, DIY ethic or, or or major label ethic. 
Where did you think you? Know, you I, I mean, you, obviously, you've been doing your own thing for quite a while, but it was definitely a landscape you were kind of being airlifted into. I mean, it was at that time the kind of bands you were seeing in Enemy, but even kind of beyond that, there was this kind of mainstream of kind of what what became known as landfill indie with mm. kooks, you know, the kind of post Arctic Monkeys bands, the Fratellis and the Zootons, but also it had. You know, all these words like yeah. you know, spiky and angular and gang of four suddenly became a big yeah, sort of point of weird, influence. So that was kind of going on at the same time. Um, were you ever concerned that you were kind of being dropped into it or expected to be part of this landscape? Because I guess these were the bands you were playing with, right? Well, no, because you didn't think you were going to make it. So you think actually at the time you think, well, actually, that's kind of a little bit like what we're doing because we always struggled with being kind of aggressive and with writing quite quite twee pop music to begin with. And then we found this way of being quite um, uh, loud and abrasive and we found it worked. And I was like, fucking hell, how have we done this? What's my mum going to think when she hears me doing this? You know, all that weird stuff that you think about. And then I think we did. We were just happy that we were able that we were being noticed for it because I don't that's that's you kind of think, well, God, if we were noticed, then we could get to do it more. I have no. It's so easy to look at it in the from 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 back back from now and realize that there was a kind of this whole major label signing up bands from all over the country and white boy guitar music thing that you can see. And then I I had no awareness of it. I knew there were some bands like the Future Heads. I just remember people people telling us about who'd got signed for what. That's what I remember, and it was always when you went to record labels or to or to meet your um, the publishers or whatever. They were it was a lot oh. of taking you out to dinner and stuff going on, and taking buying expensive rounds of drinks, and then they'd be telling you about who got who got signed for what, and it was huge like people being signed for huge amounts of money, and it was what there was yeah everybody was talking about it. Oh and what, God! You know, I remember the beast our is agents dead. T- telling us what she got scissors to the beast is dead. We killed the beast. Like, no. And we really? survived out the other end. It makes me actually money. makes me Always. feel like yeah. You know when you've got a bad when you can remember a really bad hangover. Yeah. You know when <laughs> you can think oh that remember that day after New Year's Eve two thousand that day and you felt like you felt hollow and empty and sad inside. That's how it makes me feel like when I think about going being taken out for dinner by a big publishing house. Um, or, or the day, or the, the day we got tricked into going to the Mercury nomination. Yeah, because thing. they knew we'd be because grumpy about it. How do you, how do you get really tricked into going it, to was, the Mercury? This is the day we didn't tell us what it was. Had, we had got told. We had no idea that anything. I had no idea about. I vaguely heard of the Mercury Music Prize before, but I certainly didn't know what time of year it was on, or have. And they knew that I was. We were not keyed into that sort of stuff. And we were told we were recording in Glasgow and we were told we had to go to London for a meeting. And Duncan said, I'll tell you about it when we, when you get here. You've That's your manager, Duncan. So. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they must have known that we'd have been absolutely, we'd have been like that, fuck that, I'm not going to London for an award ceremony. But this wasn't the award ceremony day. This was the day when they announced the nominees and they have the bands come yeah. and speak to the press. And I've, I've been to these in my capacity as a journalist, yeah. And you have to sort yeah. of speak to some journalists and say, how do you feel to be nominated? How did you feel to be nominated? I felt I was I was massively hungover and I had I was ill as well. 
and I was kind of hot and I turned up wearing like a sweaty t-shirt and feeling all kind of hot and fat. That's all I remember. And then being tri- having to kind of do this press uh, junket or whatever they call it. And it was just really weird. Yeah, it was quite good. It was. I mean, I was like, "Oh, that's good that we've." We wouldn't but have gone. That, no, but we would like, have said no. We would have. Was it something? Did you always want to just kind of reject that that sort of show busy awardsy side of things, or was it just that you couldn't be bothered? No, I think we. I think it. Yeah, I. Don't, I don't know. I, I. Maybe. Maybe it's one of those things where you can't accept um praise when you're given because it never felt like because it felt it never felt like anything was happening because of any merit and you never thought oh we're in we're 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 doing well because we're better than all the other bands that are not doing well you, you knew you i was always very aware of that and so therefore any kind of like highfalutin praise you always felt like it was for everybody else I, I felt like that thing was for everybody else that was involved. Pat on the back for everybody else involved. And I, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, in a way, to, more than I should, probably should have done. You know, there's nothing wrong with it, really. I mean, I, you just say thank you and get on with it. It's like, come on, don't be an absolute... How was it? I mean, was was it a strange night? Because, it's, I mean, it was, you know, to your left, there's Jules Holland... To the right, um, Amy Winehouse is sort of storming off because she didn't, uh, you know, she was annoyed she didn't win. Dizzy Rascal was hanging out in the, you know, at the bar or whatever. Was that not one of those moments where you think, um, oh, this is like, this is something? No. No, <laughs> because you feel very overwhelmed by it. There's a lot of people there. I remember it mainly through those videos that you still that still exist online from when you interviewed us. Okay. But that's really the only footage that remains. So it's the only memory that remains. I remember the bit where Amy Winehouse w- w- left when she didn't win. I remember yeah. having a uh, I remember having a a TV a commercial break to get all our equipment on sound check it. It's like proper performing monkey shit and not being able to hear ourselves and being having to try and do our harmonies on the decision which we didn't want to play anyway because it was an old song having to do the harmonies when i couldn't hear we couldn't hear each other my mum saying i saw the show you were a bit out of tune so that i remember that about the mercury's and i remember eddie no what's his name i would say eddie argos no eddie uh uh, the the one from Bottom, that guy. Adrian Edmondson. Adrian Edmondson. Adrian Edmondson. I'm going to say Eddie. Eddie! Him saying that he thought we were a great band on the telly afterwards. Uh, but I remember the bit, you filmed us in the room of the hotel and then a bit in the, in the there's a bit of footage that I've seen of us hanging out in the foyer or something. And I do, and so I remember those bits because I've seen the footage. And I remember saying congratulations to the Claxons and then them and them all having like massive pupils and being all fucked up and <laughs> traditionally boring rock and roll. I products. remember that. I remember them being really smacked, really, really far gone, and me thinking, "Wow, that must be that must feel weird, like to be that dr- that uh, that much on drugs, a thing that's all about you, and you're the center of attention. That must be a really strange feeling." The gurning, yeah. I had no idea how important it was. It's funny, isn't it? Because you realise later that people remember it. Yeah, and well, it was on like prime time. I don't know, prime time, but it was on, on TV. And I remember that night, Claxons won. 
They ended up going out all night. Jamie Reynolds from Claxons ended up standing outside the Houses of Parliament at like six in the morning saying, oh, would you like to meet a Mercury winner with his award? Just And, um, I mean, you know, it tongue, tongue, <laughs> tongue very much in cheek. But they were supposed to go on um, like BBC News or something and they were so out of it at like seven in the morning that they couldn't go on. So Alex Miller from NME, who's one of our one of our editors and writers, went, oh, went on. Him. And I mean, you could have dived into his pupils, like they were so they were so mm. wide um, on on BBC Breakfast. And he had he made some kind of quip about the presenter's hair, I think. Um, but yeah, so he you, was the one that our man. He was the one that our manager punched. I saw that. Yeah, did you? I did. I was, that was when we because we were going to get a six for Super Abundance, and then we got a five. That's that's well. Firstly, that's not true. <laughs> Um, what happened? No, because what happened was, um, I think it was after the Enemy Awards, yeah. And there was some kind of just some kind of hotel, like Shoreditch, some kind of hotel in Shoreditch. And your this is Duncan, right, your manager? Yeah, yeah. He came over to where he came over to Alex Miller, and Alex um thought he was going to like say hi and like give him a hug or something, and he sort of went, "Hey, hi, how's it going?" Just as you would to someone coming up to you. And then your manager um, kind of attacked him, launched himself at him. And I think it was broken up by Kelly from Block Party, making it the most yeah. indie altercation of all time. Um, but wow. Alex, well, Alex broke his, Alex's finger was broken. Um, so he came in the next day in the office with a sort of strapped up finger. And um, But I don't think it, there wasn't any kind of repercussion in terms of album oh, scores because I think it was I think the reason he was attacking him was because of an album review I think yeah but we so so we knew the day before it went to press what we were getting well which is why he ta- how do, I don't think we'd been, how would you know that because we would never tell people before they got well went to press. that was okay so that was so that's why he because he didn't he attacked him the night before the enemy came out Right. On, a, on what night of the week was it? Oh God! I mean, this is like. Wait, okay, what, no, you're right. If it was, if it was, if it was Enemy Awards, it would have been um, a Monday night. I think. Oh yeah. yeah, that's what it was at, was it? Yeah. yeah. Something we weren't at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because we, we, were, we weren't even there. I, I think we were actually asked recently, to go and said no. No, somebody said recently. I can't remember who it was, and I'm just. I was talking to you about this the other day. Not that we reminisce very often, but that somebody had said, look, I worked at The Enemy for ages and I kept saying we should put Young Knives on the cover. And whoever was the editor at the time was like, too old. Like Every time I mentioned it, <laughs> too old. Goodness. Uh, which is fair, fair enough. Point. Which is fair I, enough. I, we were. I don't, I really don't remember that. And I was through, I was working at Enemy full time throughout all the time when you guys were kind of doing your first, doing those, your first couple of albums. And um, I think I, I would have remembered that. All I can say I, is I didn't hear it. All I remember was, I can't remember if it was in the enemy. Too I'm old. sure it was in the enemy. Too old. Uh, it was in the enemy where it said <laughs> something like, another indie band with faces only their mothers can love. Oh, or that's not nice. That definitely wasn't me. Do you, I mean, that, no. just, that just sounds horrible. I don't think that was... I know, but we, like, we embraced it. We were like, you know, we loved like, you know, Frank Black. I mean, he's not a good looker. Like the, we, we, we were like, yeah. we knew that you didn't have to be... You know, the whole idea of being a skinny indie boy was 
not something we either aspired to be or were resentful of. Could could do. Could we could could possibly do it. Yeah. It would have been really handy if we had been really skinny and <laughs> and young and what. But, but I mean, that would have helped for the career. But then probably would have led us into a completely different, you know, even more incorrect direction than we already went in. So, yeah. So how were how happy were you with the debut album? Debut. So, yeah, so that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. You, we, we were always cri- critical of the kind of uh, pr- production, production, the sort of yeah. EQing. Yeah, very. But harsh. actually, the very harsh kind of sounding. But that was that was it really. I mean, the the thing about the working with Andy was that he was quite good at everything else all the kind of talking about lyrics and the song structures and just concepts and how to how we might approach different kind of ways of recording the song and he was quite he was good wasn't he he was quite thorough he was like a kind of father figure took us took us under the wing and and was not too pushy but still pushed us in lots of directions to try different things out you know i think what's good about it is that it has a sound even though i found the sound difficult what was good about it because we listened to it in a more analytical way and actually the sound is good because it has a lot of gaps in it in the production like there's not a lot of bottom end it's quite hollow sounding and it's quite very clattering and um it's a weird sounding record like all the guitars are like he'd be like play it like the guitar and the decision you'd be like play it without a pick just play it with your thumb and i'd be like this is really awkward which is a proper production trick it's almost like one of those throwing a kind of you know you're too good at the guitar let's make it sound a bit worse it needs to sound a bit more shambolic and uh, it sounded we chose guitars that we'd never played before he was like that and i was like oh don't make it and it's very honky and weird and so when we came out, we were a bit like, "Whoa, it's fucking, it's a bit weirdly lifeless in a way," but um, I think that's the beauty of it. Can you remember um, where it charted? Because I've got, I've, I've managed to find archive site which has the top twenty from September the second, two thousand six. It was twenty something. Twenty one. Henry's going with twenty one. I'm going to say twenty three. It's something along it, those lines. It, it did debut in the UK albums charts um, in September 2006, 2nd of September, I think, at number 21. Can you remember who was number one that week? No. It was Snow Patrol with Eyes Open. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. A great album. But you did pretty well. Did I even know, did I even know it at the time? No. <laughs> the I mean, did I look at number one at the time? No. You did. I mean, it does say something about that. I mean, it Razor Light were number seven with Razor Light, which I thought would have actually come out earlier, but apparently that's that's when it was. The Kooks were number eight. So it was that very much that kind of time. Um, you did quite <sighs> well in terms of going head to head with other new releases, though, because um, at number 23 slayer were in um straight into the charts with a new entry with the Christ, <laughs> with christ illusion so you beat them also paris hilton's album which is just called paris yeah went in at number 29 so you sold more copies than paris hilton oh cool um oh that's good and also keris matthews who went in at number 43 with never said goodbye a, a, a solo project was that yeah, I think this might have been after she had a renaissance because she was in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. 
but I'm not quite too sure. Jesus Christ, I don't remember any of this shit. But it almost, I mean, look, she? looking back, does it almost, I don't know, like a, a new guitar band even getting in the charts just seems a bit, I don't know, I guess there's like... No, I know. Yeah. No, it's, all, it's bad, isn't it? Well, it's not bad, it's a different thing, but it, 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 you kind of don't realise how l- lucky, how privileged we were, or whatever the word is, because it just wouldn't happen now, would it? Not in the same way, but then maybe... That's for the best, because there was a lot of shit as a result, wasn't there? Yeah, give us a fuck about guitar bands. <laughs> there was a load of money ploughed into a load of kind of bands that probably should have spent longer learning how to get better. Well, yeah, this I mean, it was quite movement. literally the landfill, wasn't it? It was the landfill indie. Yeah. And um, I was I read with some amusement your blurb on Spotify which sort of, I guess it's a complaint about the algorithm shoving you in. The Spotify algorithm is shoving you in comment. with... Um... It's not a complaint. <laughs> it's, how can you complain about a piece of coding? Okay, well, t- well tell me what the comment is. I can't... It's something like that the algorithms uh, got it wrong because basically we were looking <laughs> at the... We are whatever the bands like, the, like you, things that other people like that like you. And... Um, it's like Milburn and the Cribs and um, Sunshine Underground. Lots of... Pardon? Uh, Bromhead's Jacket, I think, was another one. Bromhead's Jacket. No, I know. And Sunshine... Bands that and the Good Shoes and things that don't exist anymore in the Holloways. And you think, well, that is... And I know why it is. It's because people create playlists on Spotify and they sit there for just hundreds of years and uh, they just put them on repeat and people ha- people listen to music nostalgically. But obviously now Spotify becomes something that's actually, you know, it's like what Facebook likes used to be. You know, it's how promoters decide what bands they're going to put on at a festival. I so wonder. Really I wondered if it might have come. I wonder. <laughs> okay, I wonder if it might have come from um, the uh, Vice Top Fifty Landfill Indie Tracks because that came out maybe a couple of months ago, and uh, she's attracted no, to it was your just song. Before that. Okay, mm. was number thirty-four in that, and I thought there might have been playlists made around that or something that were kind of. Well, they were, and that did spike. It did mean that at the point where our album was coming out, she's attracted to, outplayed all of the new songs, because everyone was being nostalgic, and that's a very big. That's a people, you know, some people really it's a big get dollar. people really get off on that. Oh yeah, I remember. Oh, do you remember the nights we used to go to Coco? And we, you know, that kind of thing, and whatever it was, but or uh, uh, and I, I don't mind, but I've no people listen to whatever music they want, and I'm not. It's not like I hate them, the music there, but it's, yeah, it becomes annoying when it's um, when you've got, you know, we've t- talked about this a number of times, like when you feel like you're doing something completely different, you're like, why don't we just change the name of the band then? Because it's Ollie's not in it anymore, so we, maybe we should do it, and then that feels like a bit of a lie. You're like, yeah, but it's still going to be like. A, Really, it's going to be the essence of what we've always been doing, um, but off in a different direction. So we have talked about it, and then you get to re- you start to realise how important something like Spotify has become. You're like, oh shit! Now, how do we change that? Well, you can't. You have no power over it unless you suddenly go to all your fans. Listen, what you've got to do uh, for the rest of December is play our app. Just put it on in the background on an old iPad that you're not using anymore. And, uh, and then afterwards play MIA this album by, and so we can try and get into the sounds like other people listen to MIA. I reckon you could, it's probably few enough listens that you could, uh, 
get it moved over yeah. to something like that. But, I, I think that's a but, fair comment because I think like fans. I just thought it was funny to write it. That's all. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a fair comment because I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say that bands like Bromhead's Jacket and Milburn are probably not making music like you're making now with like barbarians and things. If they're making, well, actually, I think they are. I think Milburn are doing the whole sort of say, reunion nostalgia up, tour, aren't they? Um, so not too, not particularly amused about being on a, a top fifty landfill indie. Um, I mean, I think it was the tone was quite celebratory, but and I thought it was all right. It's fine. They weren't shitty about it, so I don't. I didn't want to. I didn't read it all, but I read the first bit, and it said something like they shouldn't be on this list. Maybe because I actually really, really like this band or something. I was like, oh, fair enough. And actually, the whole tone of I think most of it was written. The title was clickbaity, and the uh, the actual content was a bit more considered. Yeah. Okay. I want to try and get um if we're going chronologically I want to try and get back up to to modern day fairly soon to to barbarians era. Um but to get to that um I mean you know you, you touched on it earlier saying how things weren't going in the direction that maybe you weren't sort of feeling was completely natural with um superabundance and up all night being kind of the quirky sort of chirpy indie lead track. So when that did lead to you like leading the label and stuff, I mean, it is almost it, it has become a bit of a cliche for bands to say, yeah, it was a relief to get dropped by a record label. Now we can do what we want. But also, like, I think the kind of music you've been making since then really sort of certainly backs it up in the sense that, you know, a lot of other bands who were from that area might get dropped. Certainly are absolutely not doing that kind of thing. So, um, you know, had, was it always like that? Was it a relief from the start or is it still a bit of a shock to get that phone call? Oh no! It wasn't, no, and we it wasn't even it. a phone call. It wasn't a phone call. I remember going in for a meeting um, at Warner Brothers, and they, they had, a, a, I think, our manager had said, "Do we need to bring like a lawyer with us or anything like that?" Anyway, they they had their lawyers sat there, and they had their accountants sat there, and they basically went, "Here's what you owe. Here's your contract. Here's how much you are in debt to us," which was a kind of a strange figure, kind of plucked out of the ether really yeah, kind of made up of huge how much like, how much well i didn't how see much any of that oh, like, pounds or something Two hundred fifty thousand pounds and it was it was you know it was it was a f- i that think might, it that was might be just, a false memory but okay i think There's it a lot was of money just to, mm-hmm. it was to scare us into signing a 360 deal yes. which is what they wanted to do one of these one of these That's 360 right. deals which were all the rage at the time they wanted us to sign up so that we gave them money from our gave us all well all our touring money and all our merch money t-shirt money yeah. and publishing money i think even i can't i'm not sure whether that was in there but to until you recouped your debt that was the idea so basically you, you would live on no, nothing you live on nothing until you recouped your debt it was a really strange and this debt um, uh, i mean without going too into sort of too deep into contracts and stuff this debt is just what they were saying made that like they'd spent on you over the years and that you owed back. Yeah, but this or is like... the thing. Yeah. This is what happens. You can almost smell it a mile off. Even at the time, you're like, you know what you got given and you know that it helped you live and you know what the guy got paid to make the record because you heard that. And you also, but you things happened, crazy things happened on Superabundance where like we went, we decided, oh, we'd like the album shoot to be this. We like this idea of a, a burnout, but it being quite staged. And, you know, we wanted to have like, a, it looked quite set. Like it was on, you know, why would someone do a, st- a burnout on a, in a kind of like a photo shoot studio sort of thing, this kind of weird idea. And then someone said to us, that it was gonna, it had cost twenty thousand pounds to do the, 
video shoot. We could make six albums for that now. And we were yeah. like, if you'd have fucking come to us and said 20,000, we'd have said, no, don't worry, we'll go out with an Instamatic camera and take some, you know, we could come up with a better idea than that. But they just spend money and spend money and spend money uh, because that's how they know how to do. And you get the impression if a band is doing badly, you imagine like a massive corporation like that. They've got a lot of expenses that are just kind of group expenses. And they just yeah. decide we've flown all the, how they We've flown everybody up. over from the from the European offices for some sort of board meeting and um, put them all up in the K-West, and et cetera, and they've all gone out for meals on expenses. And, and, we're, and we're, we're giving 10% of that money is, is your debt because we talked about you a bit. So it wasn't we so, much, it wasn't so much as, as being dropped as, as more of a, just a grab or something. I think it, if it gets to the point where you're not doing brilliantly then they just over they put more debts from other things that are doing well onto your account and they can easily yeah. they can easily cook those that's so easy to say well it's like it's running it costs for a label you think how many of those go someone once my favorite one was i i needed to go to london for i can't remember what it was a photo shoot or something and i my car was having its mot so I was going to go on the train. We never did anything like extravagant or anything. But I was like, I'm going on the train. And I said, do you know what? I was talking to the girl at Warner Brothers and she said, can I do anything to help you? And I was like, do you know what? Actually, this time, could could I get just like a taxi to the Oxford train station on sa- Saturday morning? Because I've got no car. My car's not having an MOT. Otherwise, I've got to take the bus. And she said, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get you a car. And this car turned up. And it was from whatever that taxi firm is, uh, the private cab firm in London. Addison Lee. Addison Lee. Addison Lee car. And I was like, do they have an Addison Lee in Oxford? And I got in the car and he went, where are you going? And I went, just Oxford Pet- uh, Oxford petrol station, Oxford uh, 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 train station. And he said, oh, where are you going from there? And I said, back to London. And he said, well, I've got to drive all the way back to London anyway, so you might as well stay in there. They sent the fucking car from London. It was like a £150 round trip taxi she just clicked the buttons and got the car booked for this address in <laughs> oxford <laughs> like shit well i might it sounds like it one now. of those decadent stories from the days of like queen in their pomp or something it's not that decadent <laughs> isn't it but you just realize that they just like yeah, there's just yeah, this money yeah. that people just spend it's when well, it's someone's job to spend the money isn't it so they do it yeah it how much do people, and when they booked like we went to one meeting at uh one after show thing at the k west once and I, my sound engineer was like, I, I was like, he said to me, do you want a drink? Do you want a drink? I was like, yeah, I'll have a glass of wine. And he bought me a glass of wine. And he was like, that was fucking 13 quid. That was fucking 13 quid. He's like, I got the receipt off her. I'm keeping it. I'm keep-. She didn't even smile when she gave it to me. Like the drinks, at the one glass of wine was 13 pounds. Was like, and there was a whole shitload of, it was just all music industry people as far as the eye could see. And they were all staying there. And they were all spending, you know, it's 15 quid for a pint of beer in the K-West thing. And you think, what? Where, who's, what's all this money being spent on? This has got nothing to do with why I got into music. You know, it's really quite a fa- You know, that, I mean, that's why at the end of it, you're like, good, good. Now we can actually maybe do something good and not have to hang around with all these pricks, you know, that are just yeah. enjoying yeah. them. I mean, it's, I, get, I get it. I get yeah. it. But it was never that enjoyable it's just getting fucked up isn't it so yeah well i mean, I mean you know some some, some people it's it's just 
take that on the surface level and just dive in and enjoy the fun of it and then get churned out the other end and they go yeah that was a good blast you know it was the whole sort of firework trajectory but if you're never going to take to that at all on some level then I can totally get that that just feels like a release when you get um you know severed from that so it gave us so much energy afterwards I mean to be able to, to to follow that gave me I mean, we went and did another album after that where we decided we basically went through the same sort of process because we didn't know how to behave. So we signed up with a manager who managed another big act and we tried and he basically was really from that old school record industry style. So we were going back to almost the same people and we went to LA and made this record and you're like... This is um, something this orna- felt um, so ornaments from the Silver ornaments. Arcade. Felt yeah. so wrong. And we had to come back and we spent all this money and it was essentially a 360 deal. Um, which album was that? Which, sorry, which label was that released on? I thought you'd done that yourself. It was us through Pias. Okay, right, got it. Yeah. It was our Gadzook label, but through Pias. Yeah, yeah. And we borrowed all this money and they'd essentially wanted the 360 deal and we had to pay it back out of live to the point where any festivals we did, we were ending up giving 65% of what we earned to... P.S. Does all this, does all this stuff, all these experiences, um, does it make you bitter about music and making music and like being in a band and being part of that? Because I can understand how it could really, for some people, it could pollute the whole experience. And like a lot of people wouldn't be able to just step away and say, okay, it's fine. We can just go in our caravans and make music and enjoy it now. The whole experience would be be polluted for them and there might be a bitterness or something. But um, did you feel that for for a period? No, I just, I was desperate to find another, I was like, okay, we've done this one wrong. And it was, the I could, it felt like you could see the death twitches of that kind of way of making music. I mean, that's what it felt like you were looking at. I thought, you just thought, Ooh, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you still behaving like this? It's, you know, it's, you only know how to do it one way and you're not thinking, you're not thinking about there are plenty of artists out there that are making weird music work. That's how it always made me feel like doing it. I mean, when I started, when we started looking at how other people did it, we thought, shit, there's just people out there making it work who are in control of it. So it's enjoyable. And it just seems so obvious. I mean, it's not obvious to everybody because some people are, I mean, I had to have a, we had to have a, I had to go to the pub with Ollie after we'd finished doing ornaments and a tour that wasn't that great and all and and say look it, it could be really and i had to give him the pep talk because i don't think he could see it he was like oh this is I, i'm not I put words into his mouth but he i think he felt really disillusioned by it and i had to go we could do but but the thing is that's because these people are doing it wrong it's not just that we've been rejected from the only way that the music industry works. It's that these people are desperately trying to make out money from it. And the way that it happens is they is it it ends up fucking us over a load more because we're the end. We're the end. You know, we're not we're not in control of it. We're there just their little kind of p- performers. Yeah. And that but kind of Ollie, Ollie did end up leaving the band. I mean, he was in He made Sick Octave with you as well, but he left after that album, didn't he? Yeah, and he had kids and stuff, and I still think he found touring quite hard, and it wasn't so much his thing anymore, because um, he wasn't finding it. He didn't find it easy, and it was never. And it's not easy. I mean, we don't have creative process. Isn't just isn't a lot. It was a. It had been at certain points a laugh, 
And I think that's when we were making quite lighter, easier music. And I think both me and Thomas felt that we wanted to make um, stuff that was difficult for us to do, not just something we could knock out. You know, we wanted to find something challenging to do. And I think Ollie found that probably kind of... Uh, it was our thing. And to the point where we were like, we didn't want indie drum beats anymore. You know, I didn't... So we couldn't just give, say, Ollie, write a drum beat for this. We were like, we wanted... Okay, I want this to be... I want this to bridge between hip-hop and in and rock and all sorts of things, electronic. I want it to start bridging that gap because that's what I find interesting. We've always liked, you know, the kind of electronic drum beats of, you know, what I mean, from Kraftwerk and Throbbing Gristle up to, like, hip-hop when we were growing up, all the first hip-hop. And it felt like, why are we not embracing any of that when it's the kind of fun shit that we want to... That's the fun shit we want to do. And, and was Barbarians where that really kind of came together for you guys? Because, I mean, it's like... Yeah, it's eclectic, but it's... You know, it does sound like a cohesive album. It's that, you know, you can sort of... Yeah, it was a... It, it was kind of basically... I remember at the time we were talking about just a kind of sonic splurge where we got out all the kind of things that we'd been talking about doing all the kind of ideas for kind of drum beats or the, the way that we could approach doing a song you know and so there was there's there's some kind of more song songwriting things on there and then there's some very kind of loop based things as well and that it, we just kind of got it all out really over a period i mean it, it sounds like there was a quick thing it, it took a while but um but it was about yeah, repetition, kind of... wasn't it? We wanted to embrace a bit of that kind of all those things that we'd sort of said. Actually, what's we quite like this, like music that's very, very repetitive and kind of almost uh, barren and empty. And it, and the challenge is to make that interesting. And how could we do an album where this is both has excitement and interest, but is based on just repeating? So there's no bit where it kicks up into a chorus. It's more like the chorus has to exist if it's going to exist within the same loop system of the track. And so we, the whole thing is, ba or every single pretty much song is based on some repeated element, um, which was the idea for Barbarian, which is where we started. I'd f Almost to the point now where I've forgotten that that's how we started because it's such a long time ago. And I mean, it sounds like you guys are kind of in your best element when it re it's you in control of all the elements of what you're doing as well. And it's not, you know, like you're not coming up against a producer, um, you know, creating a sound you're not totally happy with or something. So do you think like you've sort of you, after all these journey you've been through, you've kind of come back to just doing everything yourself. And that's really what feels more like uh, more like kind of things where things should be, I guess. I think it's flu I think it'll move again. I hope it'll move again. I think we needed to do it to remember to to make something it's a one way of doing it is to hide yourself away from everybody and make a record. Um and that definitely works in that there's nothing there to um destroy your idea of what you sh want to be making. But uh, to think that you aren't able to open it up to outside influence again is i think that's a bit of, that would be a mistake to say well we found the way of making the records and we'll only ever do it we need to be confident enough and strong enough 
to yeah, just we need say to challenge ourselves no. a bit as well. <laughs> so allow people yeah. in, allow other music music musicians in. That's work that's with sort other of the people. next thing we're talking. Next thing we're talking about doing really is working more with other people because we. Uh, I think we've kind of reached a point now where we're comfortable doing it together and we know what we'll do almost because you know I'll come up with some noise that loops and he'll <laughs> he'll write some a vocal over the top and then we'll start building some something along those lines. Or, or you know, it, 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 they tend to kind of, yeah, we kind of know what we'll do a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we're we now looking at doing some things with other people because it just, it's good just to have a bit more of a few more elements of chance and things that you just, you know, just uh, obstacles to overcome, really. Well, actually, you, you, you said exactly how we do write. I mean, that is exactly how we did write that. You co- you said let's steal this sample from some song that goes yeah, <laughs> and that was your that was what you brought in and I was like oh yeah. cool that's a good idea so it stops I don't have to re- start writing from zero and he's had some sort of like moment of like we should write a song like this and then I take it for four months and spend my nights sitting here in this very chair going da da da. Ba, 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 da, over <laughs> until something and then we work on it and then Tom does some like instrumentation over the top and we we, we are a, we are a long together. way from she's attracted to now aren't we I don't know I, don't, I mean it, uh, it maybe but only because that we wrote that all together there was a definite point where even in the second record we'd spent a long time we just get together like it was a job nine to five every day in this room here and we'd have a lunch break at 12. Tom and Ollie had come over like it was a job. And you're like, how are we supposed to have any space to actually come out with so many fucking ideas? If we're, you know, we, we got to the point where we were too much together and it was too much uh, co- collective writing thing. And we needed to do something else where it was more like we write, we do stuff in isolation and bring it together. Because it needed to change. That's all it was. I mean, otherwise we'd have done the same again. It's interesting you mentioning about the 20 grand that was spunked on a video. <laughs> or actually, the best video you've made was um, probably Sheep Tick. And, I mean, that's just a DIY project, I imagine, that was probably not, didn't cost 20 grand. I mean, how, how much does it cost to get hours sort of... Together. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it depends what you... Yeah. We we spent a long, 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 long time filming in all sorts of different locations and setting up our own sets. And I suppose it's still pretty much cheap. Um, and we did, we did the one we just did for uh, Barbarians, which is a shadow puppet thing that we've been meaning to do for for years and years and years and years. And in the end, we're not really even releasing that song as a single, but we just were like, <laughs> we, just we, put we, the we video out. Why not? We wouldn't have been able to do that on Warner Brothers, I don't think a shadow puppet video because actually having sat there and done it it was such a massive massive job to put it together and script it and make all the things if you'd have done that with a that with on a kind of production of that size that they would have done they'd have brought in a director of photography and somebody who's a puppet expert yeah a puppeteers you know i mean it would have been like uh, i mean it probably would have been maybe a bit better if they had proper puppeteers and better lit, but it would have been just a huge amount of money. It just wouldn't have happened. Although I did and see it would the have taken... one that someone else did that was done just as DIY and ours and is much more uh, 
sort of like hi-fi because they're obviously artists like they've got a bit more patience than we have we're like fucking hell just make it into a blob and just just uh make it whiz across the screen i'm done i want to go bed what's next then i guess i mean do you now feel that barbarians has set you on um you know a path that you can replicate or tweak or do something completely different from think that well i mean this was it took us a long time to find someone to put this out because again we were still playing i mean in in a way we've still been playing similar games and i think actually quite a lot of the pandemic experience has fed into this idea that we could do a load more of it on our own you know we can do a load more of it through the tools that are available to us the ones that everyone loves like facebook but you know bandcamp whatever it is there's ways of doing it that I think um, we've found by being consistently doing stuff rather than go disappearing for five years to write an album that are more interesting than perhaps the process from last time. I mean, we've basically got another album written anyway, which is much more, much more sparse, shorter, perhaps even a little bit more poppier. But whether or not we'll put it, whether or not it will be the next album, I don't know. It'll be something. There's some good, there's some good songs. There's a bunch of good songs we've got together, and we're just sort of looking at them and thinking, you know, in, in almost in a response to Barbarians, which is very, very um, wall of sound in a way. Lots and lots of channels of audio, lots of shit going on, lots of melodic stuff. We decided to try and simplify it and find like the kind of do a, almost a just every a Jeep album, you know, like a just find the essential three elements of the song and use them. Well, like that Stereophonics album, Just Enough Education to Perform. Is that what it's called? Jeep? Yeah, Jeep. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, we're not just gonna, we're not going to use that. <laughs> you can't use that one. Just, is it just every essential part is what the uh, Jeep... Anyway, that's what I, I always thought Jeep... That's what that's what Jeep stood for when they meant, made Jeeps, you know. Like they did, <laughs> like there's nothing, like, no embellishments on it, whatever. But really just okay. like in terms of production, making something that's got more, less stuff in it, less, very, uh, that album's quite proggy and quite muddy and quite. Um, yeah, I, I know, I know that you were working on the songs for um, Barbarians for quite a few years, but did that, did, did the process of lockdown and that sort of changed life experience affect how the album came out in the end? I was already fairly well on the path, but yes, it did in that we had to, we knew I mean, this is this is the boring stuff in the background, but uh, we knew that um, we'd always been, like I said early, right at the beginning, we'd always been talking about um, interacting with our audience using um, social media somehow, and uh, you know, you and 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 just the the way that you can connect. Uh, people are very cynical about it, and I think there's a correct. Uh, there is, you know, there's something to be said for that cynicism. And that you have to everything everything is uh it's not perfect but also we could we just knew that there was a way i mean the experience of lockdown has meant that doing the caravan sessions we've just got to know like loads and loads of people that we didn't even know i didn't even recognize their names and they've been fans since the beginning you mean you mean fans since the beginning yeah um and new and new ones and you can find ways of like reaching quite a, a weirdly kind of like fragmented audience from all over like the world that way which is quite interesting you know it's not necessarily the only way to do music but it's definitely quite interesting 
Um, and we're not getting like a load of radio play or anything like that these days uh, for one reason. It might That might have been the pandemic. That might have been that radio hate us. <laughs> it might be a combination of the two. I I heard Sheep Tick being played on BBC Six Music. Yeah, yeah. Not too. It was. It was a bit. There was a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's just like we're just there's a there's a, a whole load of stuff to sort of uh, investigate out there, and it was kind of just a an eye opener about how many people um, were were into us and still fa- still fans, even though we thought we probably shed quite a lot of the old fans and. Because they'd be like, "What's this? What's this?" But I don't care if they don't. If they if it's they liked both versions of Young Knives, that's fine. Um, but yeah, they're sort of like uh, it's it's felt quite like that sort of direct to fan thing is much more available to us than we've ever really used. And we started using it a lot. I mean, even just like boring shit like Facebook marketing, <laughs> all that kind of crap. But you think. You know, people are doing those subscription things and some of them are really lame and awful. But I mean, you know, you could do some cool shit with it. You could find there is definitely we're always I'm worried about, you know, doing stuff that's like a bit taking the piss. I don't like the idea of subscriptions that you get for things and you look at what they're actually getting for their £10 a month and you think, oh, but I think, you know, we've been we've been thinking about that kind of stuff. You know, maybe we can make a record that only those people that pay for it get involved here or whatever we need to basically what and we what basically we need to do is keep making music and we need to be more out and make ourselves you know and and do more of it and make a way for us to do more of it and focus more on it because it's because it because there was a big even just between the last record and this record too much of i mean that's a huge gap um so things are always changed you know we've realized a lot because of the lockdown so barbarians was still just written it was very like well at least what we can do is write a really fucking great record and then we'll find some way of putting it out and it's always i have i really i don't like this thing where you're going to people and saying please can i have some money please will you give me some money to make a record or please play my record on your radio show you know all that sort of i've absolutely <laughs> That's the voice that, that the I voice? imagine the pluggers do. They say, "Hello, the, please play one of these." M- I don't know if you don't, you well, probably don't yeah. like them. Please play one of these ten records. Fat, but please play their record. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing is, like, I think it used to not so long ago. I mean, I guess even around the time when you were releasing your first couple of albums, it probably was the case that you know, if you're not on a um, you know a major label or a, or a, or a decent size label even if an indie and if you're not you know in the music press anymore as it existed then or getting played on the radio you're really kind of cut off really from the from just from from everything really and just being heard by anyone and that's just simply not the case anymore is it and it's just you you can you can connect to an extent it still hugely helps when you're when you're you know monetizing an art form is almost virtually impossible anyway so you need to uh, embrace all of the kind of sales and marketing processes. Otherwise, you're fucked. You know, you have to kind of just say, look, we have to try and get it to radio. We have to get a press. And that's I, I, I mean, it must be uh, radio plugging is a list of contacts. Right. I mean, I guess that's what it is. It's a list of contacts and it's relationships, which is the way business used to work. Um, 
And uh, I'm not sure how important it is anymore, but it's still bloody important. It's still, you know, pretty important. So, touring. I think you've got dates announced for March. Are they, is that going to happen? No. Yeah, no, they're not. I was going to say. No. <laughs> I mean, no. the vaccine's coming, but, you know, we, 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 we haven't yeah. got it quite yet. Um, I keep, every time somebody says it, I keep thinking of the band. I'm like... <laughs> Oh, they can come back anytime. The vaccines. Um, I I actually went on the. Uh, t- I was on the t- trial for the Oxford uh, vaccine. How did that go? Do you know if you had the um, placebo or the vaccine yet? No, well, they wouldn't let me do. It. I went to the first meeting and they were like, "You can't do it. You've got a heart murmur." Oh. So I found out two exciting things in one <laughs> one day. What's what? What are the connotations of that? What, what you've got a heart murmur? What does that mean? Don't know. I'm supposed to go to the doctor about it, but it was March and I haven't been yet. So I better. Do you go. know what? I think I had a heart murmur when I was like a baby or something. I yeah, you do. Lots of babies have them when they're born. Yeah, it's a valve that doesn't sound quite as snappy and as proper. It's not the main valve of my heart, so. It's a oh. little side one, apparently. And she really couldn't hear it. It took her about 10 minutes to be like, she's like, I think that's a heart murmur. So we're not, they just said no. But I'm just like, I'm dining out on the fact that I would have given my body up for the nation. It was my, it was my uh, national service, it felt like, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, you were, you were there willing to do it. So I think, I think we can, I think we can count that. And I didn't even have to. Ah, I was, there was one something, I, I forgot. I, I, knew, I wanted to ask you, um, where the stage name, the House of Lords, came from? Oh, uh, well, uh, you, Henry made it, Henry and Oliver made it up because apparently I vetoed all their decisions or something, which isn't true. I think it was just that I was grumpy. That was it, wasn't it? I we was made miserable. some decision. It was Ollie. Ollie said it. I, I, I said something. We, we. I think we were doing a demo cover to send to... We always had things written in notebooks when we were making our early music. And I mem- I've still got one. It says, send demo to Steve Lamack, <laughs> uh, which would be like... on, the- And there'd be just one thing on the to-do list. So we would be make up these demos of the things we'd just recorded in the village hall. And then we'd make an artwork up or a cover. And I'd say, what's it in the very early Photoshop? I guess it must have been. Um, and uh, I'd make it up and I'd be like, Ollie, what do you reckon? He'd be like, well, I like it, but you might want to wait and see what the House of Lords thinks, you know. So and I remember him saying it and I was like, that's a fucking good stage name. Let's just actually go. And then we were like, we want stage names. It is a, thing, it is a good <laughs> stage name and I think it kind of works with the whole sort of slight eccentricity of the band without going, again, going into that sort of wackiness. It was, it was, it was, it was a funny thing. It worked, it did work in my to my advantage quite a lot like i got offered to do things off the back of it which i wouldn't have done if i didn't have the wacky name do yeah you know the what enemy I mean? call list probably happened because yeah i think which, so if you were called just Thomas the name <laughs> which number yeah, would, wouldn't which, have got which, it no i should know this because this would have been my, my i probably lobbied to get you in there um I, I was number 14 goodness me that's fantastic yeah, I was. I was me. I can't remember whether Jamie Reynolds was thirteen or or or, or fifteen. I think he beat me. I, th- I seem to remember he beat me, and he said, "I beat you." But that was. I know uh, you guys are like my... cynicals about the machinations of the music industry, but you must have enjoyed that. Yes, I did. Well, I did in in that I got it and they didn't. <laughs> you also yeah, you also didn't because they had normal names. Well, I, normal names. Normal. I've names. also remembered that. Um, I went to Nashville with Jack Daniels and saw you like Jack Daniels every year. You used to do this thing where they'd spend an enormous amount of money flying 
a bus, well, a plane load of journalists to the Jack Daniels factory in Lynchburg, Tennessee, I think it is, isn't it? And they'd have a gig and they'd have a few musicians and they'd play with the local musicians which they called the silver cornet band which are kind of the jack daniels house band a lot a lot of like good old boys and girls playing root and tootin rock and roll and um yeah i guess do you think that contributed to that as well uh, yeah completely because i remember at the time when whoever the press people were contacted our then manager who got he said you've been offered this thing and i and I, it's forwarded it over to me and i i said are you sure are you sure and then i spoke to somebody and i said you know i'm not the you know, I'm not the singer in the band. And I think there was, I don't know whether there was a discussion or but I felt like that there was some, they'd sort of half offered it and then they went, oh, I don't think he's, he's not the singer in the band. I don't know. That's how I... That, People it, still refer to me as the House of Lords in things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they say, you know, oh, watch out, the House of Lords in his, you know, when I, I said something the other day, I put some photos of me wearing band t-shirts <laughs> up on Bandcamp to try and for Bandcamp Friday. And someone said, House of Lords in his shed. And I was like, fucking hell, 20 years later. Yeah. You still think but that I'm, was weird. Still getting to... your Ant and Dex mixed up. I know. I had to go and get on stage and sing with all these, with, um, what's his name? Um, Tim Wheeler from Ash. Uh, Stranglers. Uh, um, Tim Sh- Wheeler Sh- from Ash. Cor- Hugh Cornwell from, Ash, from the Stranglers. Hugh Cornwell. And wasn't it um, Royce yeah. and Murphy as well? It was, yeah. Yeah. And you sang she Gloria nice. by Patti Smith. Yes, I hate that song. I was like, I didn't know it either. I was like, I don't know what this song is, but it's really bluesy yeah. and kind of not the sort of thing I'm interested in at all. But anyway, I bet it was a, I bet it was like a good payday. Pretended I, I was on. That was a good payday, though. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it paid for my wedding actually. That and some other things. Yeah, yeah. What I really, what what really annoyed me about that gig was that we turned down the headline slot at Iceland Airwaves so that you could do it as well. <laughs> that was the most annoying thing. We decided to have, and instead of that, we went on at five o'clock on a Friday, instead of the Saturday night headline slot that we so were I could go on my free, so free, that you could go on your fucking jolly to <laughs> jolly to the dry state to to drink their drink in the dry state. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much. It was good. It was thank you very much for doing that for me. Searching Wow, so quite an in-depth chat with the band there, Sarah. I feel like we've kind of really have got into their minds and, and heard exactly how their 20-year career kind of spanned out and, and where they're at now. What did you make of it? 100%. I thought I completely agree. It's, it's really amazing, I think, to hear these bands that have been going for so long uh, have so much to say and, and sound so passionate and just be still like, really in it and um, really enjoying talking to us as well. Uh, but yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting when we talked about it earlier was um, 
you know, playing, playing live in a virtual gig and, and not getting that feedback, um, you know, they, they said that as well, didn't they? Yeah, and this, this I think, links to what we were talking about with the Oriel's, um, you know, virtual gig at the top of the show around, you know, it's great that bands are finding new ways to connect with fans, and in their case, playing the caravan sessions from a, from a caravan in their, their garden. But, you know, you also can't replicate that feedback and that energy that you, that you get from a crowd. So I think ultimately where, where this has kind of left me thinking is that I reckon once bands can get back into venues, this is just a prediction, but... I do think the virtual gigs thing will be a short-lived thing. I don't think bands will think, oh, well, one tour, we'll do, we'll do a tour of venues, but then for the next tour, we'll just kind of do it virtually. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, what, what innovation has been made or done this year, what will carry on and what won't carry on. And I think it would be stupid to not carry on, I think, these virtual gigs because I think it's, you know, logistically a lot easier for, for bands to do it. And I'm saying when, when live gigs come back, I'm not saying they won't do that. Of course, hopefully there's still going to be a place and still going to be gig venues that are going to be around and, and, and able them to do that. But I do think it makes sense that if people don't mind spending a tenner on, on a virtual gig, you know, it's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. I wonder if we'll end up with a hybrid, actually, thinking about what you're saying there. You know, I think we, we kind of went into this with slightly, a slightly opposing point of view, and I might come out with a compromise, which is unusual for me. But if you can imagine a band are doing a, a sold-out tour of either large venues or, let's say, even the smaller types of venues that, you know, your Young Knives or Oriels might play, that let's say they're charging 20 quid on the door for people who have a ticket, maybe they could live stream that gig for a tenner virtually. So if you can't make it to Southampton, Oxford nottingham that night but you want to see the gig there's a way of logging in so maybe that's i guess we can only see how it how it pans out next year really can't we definitely and i i'm thinking lads just as we're talking and just as you're talking there around if we think about the you know even if we talk about the newspaper model and how people used to expect reading the newspapers online for free and then it suddenly went behind a paywall there was a bit of a uh, a hesitation for people to to pay for that but it's worked and it's working and people are paying for it. So I think that, you know, people might be expecting bands to kind of live stream things for free. But the more people get used to it, I think the more people, you know, the more people will start to, to, to not care or not mind doing it and understand how it actually supports them. Yeah, and it's interesting we talk about this because, uh, you know, we are looking at guests for kind of later in the series. And I won't give any names away, but I'm quite keen to get some music industry type expert people boffin types right who understand this better than us and understand the business side and and get some points of view and some opinions so yeah watch this space on that i think another element of this interview i thought was interesting with with young knives that jamie really kind of got under the skin of was kind of their career trajectory you know they um they had kind of they kind of burned brightly but fairly briefly i think in kind of the mid sort of 2000s um and then they sort of disappeared in, in terms of, you know, they lost their label deal around sort of the second album, uh, but they've carried on and they've kind of, kind of from what Jamie, I think, was, was sort of getting from them, that, you know, losing their label deal meant they actually had a lot more kind of creative freedom and, and sort of producing stuff like Barbarians, the album they've just put out, that maybe a label would say no to. And they seem to quite enjoy making music that they knew that a label would say no to, but it's what they kind of creatively want to do. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I think we've, we spoke about this before, didn't we, that, you know, there's lots of, uh, lots of bands that have had major labels and have either lost them or, you know, one way or the other, they don't ha- they're not signed to a major label anymore. 
Um, but I think it does give them a bit more creative freedom. You're right. You're 100% right. And actually, would they have been able to do this if they were on a major label? No, probably not. That's sad, you know, to think that if they were on a major label, we might not have got this kind of music. So I think, you know, this, it, it depends, doesn't it? Obviously, they've got to make their money somehow. Um, they, they, they've got to live and eat and, you know, just like the rest of us. Um, so it's probably a little bit harder. But again, that shows the, the passion that comes through, doesn't it? And that, that, that for me is the, is the quandary around this, you know, is, is that commercial aspect to it? You know, we, we spoke to Tom Clark about this, didn't we, on, on an episode, you know, a few episodes ago. And, you, and I said to him, if you, if you were offered, you know, if, if this album that you've just released independently, The Chronicles of Nigel, did really well and you were, sell, you, know, you were selling out thousands of copies and a label came along and said, well, we can boost that even more. Would you do it? And he flat said, no, he's been so burned by it. And I wonder, I wonder if Young Knives would be in the same situation. But on the other hand, you know, without without that backing, they're kind of having to do it all themselves. But you know, they, they they've sustained a career for twenty years. So maybe the proof is uh, in the pudding, right? Yeah, definitely. And just going on to Jamie and how he knows the band. What I really loved to hear um, was that the fact that how they met. So they met at, uh, working in HMV, didn't they? Yeah. So I think we probably should have said this earlier on the show. But the Young Knives are originally from Ashby de la Zouche. Probably on, the best. Hang on, Young Knives. <laughs> Oh, you've caught me out there. <laughs> Young Knives, <laughs> brilliant. That's one all now, right? Um, Young Knives are from a, the brilliantly named town of Ashby de la Zouche in uh, Leicestershire, probably not too far from, uh, from where you grew up in Nottingham. No, it's not. I've been there a few times, beautiful place. But they then moved to Oxford because they wanted to move to a kind of better music scene that wasn't London, but was kind of in sort of the southeast. And yeah, from, from listening to the interview, they then met Jamie through working in HMV. And by the sounds of it, he in his kind of pre-NME days, was introducing them to, to new bands or old bands. I think it was The Fall. They mentioned they were kind of listening to in the uh, stock room. So I thought that was interesting, and it sent me on a bit of a nostalgia trip. I don't know about you, about um, record stores. Now, people who know, who've, who've seen any of my writing in NME way back in the day, which is probably, what, 1% of our, of our listenership, uh, may know that I wrote a column for NME about why I didn't care about record store day. Um, and I still don't care about Record Store Day, and it briefly caused a few ripples of kind of controversy. But, you know, when I think back to when I first got into music, way before there were things like Record Store Day and uh, the release of, you know, White Stripes, old singles being put out on gold vinyl and people queuing up for it, which I think is the thing I hate about Record Store Day. You know, I think I did discover quite a lot of the bands that subsequently were kind of staples of my music collection from thumbing through the cds in hmv it sounds like something from the victorian era right but that's how back in the day when we were teenagers that you would discover new bands before the days of kind of spotify and youtube and all that so did it send you on a similar nostalgia trip sarah absolutely and you're so right it used to be the thing that you do at the weekend you would wake up you eat your breakfast your cereals your honey nut oats whatever you ate you get on the bus into town pay 50p for your bus fare get off walk to hmv stay there for ages Go and listen to all the, you know, all the headphones. It's quite sad to think that you probably, in, in this COVID, COVID world, you wouldn't be able to share the headphones anymore, would you? But you used to pop a pair of headphones on, press the CD number, and you could listen to the whole album. And it was a great way of being able to try and experience new music. And they, I remember they always had loads of different types of albums in there. So you could be listening to the Spice Girls one second. The next minute you could be listening to the Lighthouse Family. I mean, I don't know where these examples are coming from, but you know what <laughs> I mean. It's <laughs> Lighthouse Family. Where did that come from? But very, very different. 
Um, I don't even like the Lighthouse Family. <laughs> I briefly considered buying a Lighthouse Family album when I was about 11 or 12, I think. And then I think um, I discovered something else like the Verve or Oasis and thought, God, I'm glad. I'm glad, I'm glad, I, didn't glad. Go, glad I didn't go down that, that road of easy listening. You know, that, that would have been a terrible direction to go in. <laughs> it would. And we would not be here today, would we? We probably yeah. wouldn't be, you know. I probably wouldn't be. I'd be banned. From writing for a magazine like Enemy, if I'd have uh, if I'd have admitted that one of my early records was the Lighthouse Family. That's, Saying uh, that, we have both admitted our love for Simply Red on this show. So, oh, but there's I a mean, world of difference between Simply Red and the Lighthouse Family. <laughs> I'm so glad Lighthouse Family just popped into my head because this conversation's taken a turn for the better. This is my hangover, hangover brain that's talking now. I love it. Maybe I should be hungover more often when I come on the podcast. I guess this is probably a good chance for us as well to get the listeners to get in touch with us and tell us what they think. So we're really interested to know, A, what you made of the track you heard from Barbarians. If you've heard the whole album, we want to hear that too. But also, you know, did the, the chat about kind of HMV spark anything new? Any memories you've got of discovering new music? So how can listeners get in touch with us to give us those uh, memories and thoughts if they have twitter or instagram we are at demo tapes pod or they can email us old-fashioned way um which is demo tapes pod at gmail.com or send a carrier pigeon or bring us a hand-delivered note whatever you want to do and we should probably also at this stage say you know we're Expect to get a couple of episodes out before Christmas. We'll take a little break, but we're working on some really exciting stuff. I almost don't want to curse it, um, but there's some really exciting stuff in the pipeline. Not all bands. There might be some film-related stuff. I won't say any more than that. If you've been on our social media meet recently, you might know what we're talking about. But, um, yeah, some interesting episodes in the pipeline, so do stay tuned. Yep, do. Please do. And also, if you are listening on iTunes, it's always really useful for us if you could give us a five-star rating. It helps us to produce more content for you perfect but i guess uh, otherwise uh, all we've got for this week to say is yeah thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode bye